Then they smile to bring sight to the blind man. It's down to the left child. We will survive in this country wilderness. Swimming through the waters of Babylon like a rebel fish. Jogging is specialist, critical and survivalist. Living heaven, fight from his lips. Burn a slave driver. Listeners, to time for an awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4, 6 states, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people can turn this around. Proverbs 4, 7 states, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. It's all about getting an, an, an understanding. Welcome to the program this evening with your hosts, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. Again, that's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations, you can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage and catch the live stream. At that location, you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream there also. You can go to a bb2me.com, that's A B I. B I T U M I dot com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream there. Or you can download TuneIn to any of your devices. TuneIn is a free radio app. In that TuneIn search engine, just type in time for an awakening. There you see the icon and you can stream your program live, even into your car if you had the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's time for an awakening radio program with the live stream. On the TuneIn app, drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an Awakening also has a fan page on Facebook and that Facebook search engine. Just type in Time for an Awakening radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor before you leave that page, just hit that like button. It's Time for an Awakening radio program. With the fan page on Facebook and Time for an Awakening Media is there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on Time for an Awakening Media. Interesting articles that you can read, download later times, and share with your friends. Also check out that Time for an Awakening Marketplace in our partnership with the BB to me. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Uh, various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. 707 here in the city of Philadelphia on this Sunday evening here, and we're in the Sunday night edition of Time for an Awakening. Tonight, on this anniversary, 
of Malcolm's assassination in 1965. We'll be dealing with a topic that uh, you might find interesting. And I'll title it The Anatomy of a Grassroots Organizer. We'll be talking about this with a person that has been doing the work and still doing the work. He'll also be showcasing an event that he's having uh, later on this month. In fact, it's next weekend, the second annual Africa and the World Thanks Cuba Cultural Tribute and Festival. But before we get to that, we'll be talking the anatomy of grassroots organizing with our guests this evening, activist, journalist, and playwright, and U.S. correspondent to the Herald, which is Zimbabwe's national newspaper, Brother Obi McBona, Jr., And we'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. And I can see my uh, sponsor's key was not up. Uh, Well, when you're in live radio, it's always something going on. But we can always straighten that out and get things back on track. And uh, we'll do that after we break for our sponsors, and you can uh, get involved always in the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We'll be right back. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, Brothers and sisters, our friends and and our enemies. (laughs) Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 215- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? 
suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors, or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot, Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m., for podcasting or live program scheduling. Hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening at 713 here in the city of Philadelphia on this Sunday evening. Time for an Awakening. And before we get started with our program, I want to bring in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Art Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Elliot. How are you, sir? Um, hey, it's been a rough week, Elliot, but I'm doing fine. I don't even, it's, it's, it's too much uh, to transition, but um, to even even try to make a joke out of it, you know, <laughs> To make it light for me, for me and the audience, I, it'll be a burden for me to tell. But I, um, you know, um, as we, you know, dealing with today, you know, recognizing um, the passing of um, the assassination of of, of of Brother Malcolm, you know, it's interesting that just over the weekend, you know, they had this new letter that came out that supposedly. I guess they're supposed to confirm what we already know, right? mm-hmm. you know, and, and and it's just just interesting how how timing and um, things like this um, come out, and and I think that um, I hope that we think critically um, um, in the sense of you know I'm I'm very distrustful of the media, general media, and the systemic um, people in it. So when they say they now got a de- uh, letter from somebody who was there, who's now dead and can't speak for himself, and and want to take us through the hoops, I'm I'm just my um, cynicism asks me, <clears throat> why now? 
and what does it mean? But taking that aside, you know, that um, given another opportunity to um, recognize a, as, um, as it was said, a shining star of Brother Malcolm. Yeah, I, I saw that also. And if we uh, uh, have an opportunity, bef- uh, you know, after, uh, after we talk with uh, Brother Obi, uh, maybe we'll get a chance to spin off into a little open forum and I'll, uh, I'll share that article that, uh, that was in the published reports today in reference to, uh, uh, to, to Malcolm. Um, you know, it, it's a big interesting topic because uh, in a couple of weeks we're supposed to have Leonard Boyd joining us. Uh, who wrote the book Defeat of Black Power? Um, then a little feedback. I think it is that on my end or your end, Richard? I don't hear anything. Okay. Um, this subject tonight will uh, kind of lead into that. I, I think it's a good precursor uh, to looking at uh, the the, orga- the organizing that happened. Uh, for the 72 convention, but, uh, before we do that, let me play, uh, this snippet here leading into the introduction of my guest. So this government has failed us. The government itself has failed us. And the white liberals who have been posing as our friends have failed us. And once we see that all these other sources to which we've turned have failed, we stop turning to them and turn to ourselves. We need a self-help program, a do-it-yourself do philosophy, a do-it-right-now philosophy. Uh, it's already too late philosophy. This is what you and I need to get with. And the only time, the only way we're going to uh, solve our problem is with a self-help program. Before we can get a self-help program started, we have to have a self-help philosophy. Black nationalism is a self-help philosophy. What's so good about it, you can stay right in the church where you are and still take black nationalism as your philosophy. such an explosive political year because this is the year of politics. This is the year when all of the white politicians are going to come into the Negro community. You never see them until election time. You can't blame them until election time. They're going to come in with false promises. And as they make these false promises, they're going to feed our frustrations. And this will only serve to make matters worse. I'm no politician. I'm not even a student of politics. I'm not a Republican, nor a Democrat, nor an American. And got sense enough to know it. I'm one of the 22 million black victims of the Democrats. One of the 22 million black victims of the Republicans and one of the 22 million black victims of Americanism. And when I speak, I don't speak as a Democrat or a Republican. I speak as a victim of America's so-called democracy. You and I have never seen democracy. All we've seen is hypocrisy. (laughs) 
When we open our eyes today and look around America, we see America not through the eyes of someone who has, who has enjoyed the fruits of Americanism. We see America through the eyes of someone who has been the victim of Americanism. We don't see any American dream. We've experienced only the American nightmare. We haven't benefited from America's democracy. We've only suffered from America's hypocrisy. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. And uh, before I introduce our guest, let me say this in reference to the subject we'll be talking about with him this evening. You know, in our sojourn here, after being bought here and uh, kidnapped or being bought in chattel enslavement, uh, we've always had movements uh, to free our people and to alleviate the oppression that we would, had been suffering here. Um, organizing. It always took grassroots organizing to do it. Being an organizer is a talent and a skill. Sometimes you naturally have it. Sometimes it can be learned. Boy, um... Uh, folks got to mute their mics. Um, sometimes it can be learned, but a lot of the movements that we see in history, if you've seen a leader, they were always organizers behind the scenes. If you're talking about Denmark Vesey, if you're definitely talking about Gabriel Prosser, who had maybe up to a thousand men, history says, and that Turner, all of those movements had a leader, a quote-unquote charismatic leader, but they were always organizers, and sometimes you never knew the organizers' names. If you move up in history, Marcus Garvey, a charismatic leader. Sometimes history shows that the charismatic leader is also a good organizer. Sometimes that might not be the case. Malcolm, during the, the, uh, the label, I'll label it the Civil Rights Black Power era, Malcolm was a leader and an organizer. He was an organizer for the Nation of Islam, but himself happened to be a charismatic leader and organizer. Martin King, who surrounded himself with organizers, one of them we had on this show, uh, Brother Mukasadada, Willie Ricks, was tapped because he was a great organizer. Two different skills, sometimes one and the same, but you'll never find one without the other. And that was something that was always frowned upon by our European captors. They didn't want to, uh, our people developing any leaders. And when the leaders were caught, they definitely wanted to know who else was involved so they could smash any movements. Both the leaders and organizers had to be eliminated. One of the greatest gatherings that this country has ever seen happened in 1995. I'm not talking about the March on Washington that King was involved in. I'm not talking about these fools that was running around down near the Capitol about a month ago. In 1995, 
1.5, maybe 2 million brothers was down there in that Washington area on that mall. A charismatic leader, but definitely organizers pull that off. The backbone of any movement is organizers. We want to discuss the anatomy of a grassroots organizer with our guest this evening, activist, journalist, and playwright, and U.S. correspondent to the Herald, which is in Bowie's national newspaper, Brother Obi Igbona Jr. Hey, Brother Obi. Hey. You got your ha- you got your hands full tonight, or what? Can you talk? Oh, always, always. <laughs> My hands are going to be full for a very long. They've been full for the last thirty-one years, but for the last two and a half, a little more fuller. So I've always got time for you. How you doing? I'm doing great, but but I hear Junior in the, in the distance there, so I don't know whether you're going to be able to stay with oh, us long. No, 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 no. We, we're, we're fine. And as a matter of fact, um, that in itself is, um, I think, very important um, for people to pick up on because you know what they try to say, especially about brothers who have given themselves to the front line. They make it seem like we're irresponsible when it comes to our nuclear family responsibilities. Mm. So they'll be able to hear firsthand while we're sharing with you, while we're exchanging with you. We're feeding a two and a half year old. We're nurturing a two and a half year old. So I have no problem. Okay. Part of an organizer's job is to shatter misconceptions that are false and flawed. That's good. So let's do it. You know, I titled this segment of the program, and, and later on we're going to get to kind of showcasing the uh, second annual Africa in the World Thanks Cuba Cultural and Trib- uh, uh, Cultural mm-hmm. Tribute Festival. Before we do that, let's look at. Organize. I was enjoying. I was enjoying what you were doing. I was listening. I was like, man, let me just listen to them tonight. Well, no, I want to. I want to set. <laughs> I want to set the tone for what you were involved in because it's key. Mm-hmm. Uh, that gathering in 1995 that we seen in 95 right. started a lot earlier yeah. in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And it started with uh, men like yourself who was the student organizers to go out into the field, not with millions of dollars, not with uh, 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 an unlimited budget, but to mm-hmm. go out in the field and develop uh, the mentality of our people to get involved uh, with the culmination of those movements. Talk about, Mm. see, because, and that's something that the average person don't see. They see the finished product. I I want you to take me and Richard and listening audience down this path. When uh, uh, you as a young student who had been involved in movements, your dad was Mm -hmm. an example to you, and you you were a conscious individual at a young age, Talk about mm-hmm. how that worked, how that was tapped to get and target you and others, because it was others, yes, as being Many student others. organizers. And to, to walk us time, through that dynamic. Let me just tell you um, how happy I am to be um, on on a night where we're celebrating um, Omwali's um, departure from the battlefield, not necessarily his assassination. I couldn't think of a better day to do it. Um, now, let me just say this as a backdrop. When we shut Washington, D.C. down in 1992 in response to the uh, Rodney King uprising, as we like to call it, which Jane Fonda said was full of hate and rage, 
And if I ever meet that white liberal woman, I tell her, I don't have any hate and rage at all. All I have is resistance. I don't have room for hate and rage. That's a little too emotional for me. And we don't have the luxury of being emotional when we aggressively pursue our liberation. But anyway, my father told me um, I was excited, happy, humble, other adjectives similar. And he said, not bad for a two-year-old. And I said, what? And he said, you've been politically active two years and you're shutting down cities. That is impressive. But imagine what you'll be able to do after 10 years of service, 15 years of service, 20 years of service, if you last that long and struggle. So um, with that being said, I think to appreciate what happened in 1995, you have to go back to, well, for us, um, 1990. In 1990, I was a co-founder of an organization called the United Pan-African Front, which was modeled after the Black United Front in 1968, that Kwame Ture was part of, that Baba Zulu, the founder of the oldest African independent school, Uju Mashule, was part of, then Lester McKinney, that Marion Barry was part of, Calvin Rolark. And so we wanted to, we felt that we needed a national united front of our student and youth organized formations but we recognized that while we were assembling something of that magnitude direct action is a responsibility that you always have so in 1989 we were stampeded by the national guard at virginia beach at a social gathering so we decided that we would boycott virginia beach the following year so we were able to do that that same year in 1990 Many people look at that as when my diva Nelson Mandela was released from prison. But for people who really pay attention to the struggle in what's called the Zania South Africa, that year, one of the greatest fighters that struggle ever produced was lost, Zephaniah Motopeng, as he's affectionately called Uncle Zeph. And besides the Madiba, he's the second or third longest imprisoned fighter on the infamous Robben Island. He was very involved in the Sharpeville Massacre, which was the demonstration on March 21st, 1960, against the Pass Act laws and the first demand for our land, which ushered in the Pan-Africanist Congress of the Zania on a mass level because it was created on April 6th, 1959. We had the honor of organizing his funeral, helping organize his funeral in the diaspora. That, that same year, Namibia independence, which was overshadowed by the Madiba's release, and Namibia got its independence, and they had been fighting an armed struggle since 1966. So you had that going on. We started working with the National Union of Eritrean Students. Eritrea had been fighting a guerrilla struggle since 1961. They got their independence African Liberation Day weekend, May 25th, 1991. We remembered being in the park and watching them circle the park, firing guns in the air, pot guns, I believe it was, and firecrackers and stuff, saying that we're finally free. And um, so we, were, we had the opportunity to work with them. As it became fashionable um, at 20 years ago, after the um, United Nations Conference on xenophobia, racism, xenophobia, and other related intolerances, and many people finally felt comfortable after Jimmy Carter gave them permission or validation, started all of a sudden talking about Palestine more than usual, which is positive. 
but we were part of the Worldwide African Anti-Zionist Front as youth organizers um, in 1991. It was created in Libya in 1990, and many of our nationalist organizations in this country were there at the initial um, creation of it. Um, many of you were happy to see the Washington football team finally rid itself of that genocidal symbol. And the reason that African people in this country, U.S.-born Africans, targeted the Washington Redskins because if you were fans of sports and, or no sports history, rather, you know the Washington football team was the last NFL franchise to let an African play for it. As a matter of fact, the owner, George Preston Marshall, at one time, he said, I'm more George Wallace will desegregate Alabama before I desegregate the Washington Redskins. So um, we started working with the American Indian Movement Grand Governing Council on a project they had called the National Coalition Against Racism, Sports, and Media. And um, they targeted the Washington football team, then called the Redskins. They targeted the Cleveland Indians because Chief Wahoo was nothing but little black Sambo, spray painted red with a bandana and feather on him. And the Atlanta Braves, whose tomahawk ritual is what they used to do when they beheaded our Native American sisters and brothers. So we started doing that work in 1991 with them. We were part of a coalition in Washington, D.C. calling for a national movement against the privatization of public schools in this country. Um, let me see. In 1993, we were involved in a hearing in the U.S. Congress that the late John Conyers called talking about um, the harassment of the intelligence agencies in this country on our elected officials. But at the grassroots level, people told um, Congressman Conyers, it's no way that you can go before the Hill and talk about the surveillance on elected officials and not talk about the counterintelligence program. Because if you did that, it would suggest that you felt that elected officials shouldn't be monitored by the Homeland Security apparatus. That distinction should only be reserved for Brother Malcolm. That distinction should only be reserved for Dr. King. That distinction should only be reserved for the Black Panther Party. That distinction should only be reserved for the NAACP and others who had been tormented by the Homeland Security apparatus, which we used to call the Military Industrial Intelligence Police Complex. Um, so by the time 1995 came around, one of the things that we had realized, even though we were five years old politically, part of being seasoned came with the study. So when we became involved in the Million Man March, it had nothing to do with the march per se. It was the 50th anniversary of the Fifth Pan-African Congress, which took place in 1945 in Manchester, England, which is considered the most significant assembling of Africans anywhere. Because after they assembled and they said colonialism must go, 12 years later, Ghana gets its independence, 57. 15 years later, 1960, 35 nations in Africa got their initial flag independence which is considered the most rapid swing towards progress in the history of the human race. As a matter of fact, in Dr. King's letter to the Birmingham jail, from the Birmingham jail, he said that the anti-colonial movement in Africa was moving like a jet. And the movement to desegregate lunch counters and get the right to vote 
desegregate public schools was moving like a horse attached to a buggy. He wanted to move like a jet. So um, we, we thought about that. Also, anyone who knows the history of May Day in this country knows that um, May Day is celebrated all over the world, what is called International Workers' Day, because in 1887, police in Chicago shot white demonstrators who were protesting the 14-hour work day. And only 24 years before that, we were part of the forced free labor workforce, which we had been for nearly 300 years. So an African woman named Lucy Parsons organized that, and they were demonstrations simultaneously all over the country. And the following year, based on what the police did to demonstrators in Chicago, demonstrations were um, taking place all over the world. So what had happened is Brother Bob Brown, who was the founder of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, ironically, as we're talking tonight, in 1968, and no, that's not in the movie that many of you are breaking your necks to see. He was 17 years old. He recruited Fred Hampton and Bobby Rush. Those were his first two recruits. And um, what happened was he was um, called in to organize an aspect of the march called the Day of Absence and Day of Action. So, And our goal was to shut down all the cities in this country on October 16th. No young people should go to school. No young people should go to work. And even if they did not have the resources or capital to assemble in Washington, they could organize activities in their city, shut down their cities, and so it could be in accordance and harmony with what was happening in Washington, just like in Ghana. In 1963, the day after Dr. The, the march on Washington was held, the night, the day after Dr. Du Bois died. So Julian Mayfield and Maya Angelou and Tom Feelings and W. Alpheus Hinton and Alice Wyndham and all these giants marched in the U.S. Embassy to show their harmony with the march on Washington. And uh, so we studied all of that and said we could do the same thing. And our slogan was shut down America for the day of absence and day of action. Now that didn't go to that. A lot of people weren't embracing of that. And as a matter of fact, so the day of absence was a positive action campaign. And we had four, according to the conservative estimates of Newsweek magazine and the census and the National Park Service, they say 4 million of our people participated in that. And we were also thinking about what Nkrumah and the Convention People's Party did in Ghana with the positive action campaign. We were thinking about Lumumba's campaign in the Congo with the Congolese National Movement. We were thinking of the September Revolution in Libya. We were thinking about the Guinean Revolution where they all used strikes, demonstrations, and boycotts to dismantle the colonial apparatus. So too often when I hear academicians reflect on the Million Man March, when we hear social critics reflect on the Million Man March, when we hear journalists reflect on the Million Man March, when we hear the chief architect, the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan, reflect on the Million Man March, there's hardly no mention at all of the Day of Absence and Day of Action campaign. And as one of the people who was 25 at the time, 51 today, that was involved in that process, we feel obligated by history to share that.
uh, Brother Obi, let me let me uh, a couple throw a couple things in there to kind of uh, develop before our listening audience. Um, well, three things, uh, and and a question. Ben Chavis was he involved? Or was he was he like the um, director of the youth organizers? No, no, he was not, no, he was not. He well, was involved in so he had he was part he was a co convener of the overall march with an organization called Nails National African American Leadership Summit. Okay, no. What he attempt what he attempted to do though? Yes, he did engage us. Okay. The very first meeting that the National Youth Organizing Committee had. He came into the meeting and he said, you're going to do, you're going to eat, sleep, and drink three words for the duration of the summer. So this is in July. He said we were going to eat, sleep, and drink voter registration. And we responded to that the way you would respond to Richard Pryor or Dave Chappelle joking. It's funny to us. Only because he assumed that every youth organization in the room was into voting registration, which means he bought into the narrative that it is the most effective outlet of our expression. Let me use this opportunity to say one thing about that. We're not telling people um, how to deal with voting. What we're telling you is look at your historical relationship to both mainstream parties. What we are telling you is scientifically determine what is the most effective strategy that has gotten the most results, historically speaking. And we are confident telling you the grassroots organizing. So we politely declined. And what was supposed to happen is when the National Youth Organizing Committee was supposed to put together, we were supposed to have weekly debriefings with the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan. And Ben Chavis said he would brief the minister on our activities. And we declined that and said we speak the same colonial language the minister does, so there's no need for an interpreter. So we didn't have the opportunity to talk with him until 1997 when he came back to Washington two years after the fact and we shared that with him in a brief 10-minute conversation and he had no prior knowledge and he's a devout Muslim so he doesn't need to lie. Allah would not like that. So um, that yes that did happen. He tried to restrict us to dealing with the vote and he said that there was no need for the day of absence and day of action to take place because him and the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan were going to meet with all the HBCU presidents and make an appeal to them to close. And that's when Brother Bob Brown intervened. And we said, no, 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 no. We're going to shut those schools down ourselves. That's what we're in the room for. And we will do our job. And so we established that right away. It was We, we established it respectfully. It wasn't antagonistic. Because for young organizers that are out there listening, when you hold firm, you'll be surprised the respect you command. You don't have to be nasty. You don't have to be antagonistic. Just hold firm to your principles. Hold firm to when it comes to strategical and tactical warfare, too, especially in this era when we're dealing with the bastardization of methodology. So that happened, and then we move forward. Now, and um, we, we go ahead. Now, now, because uh, you mentioned Bob Brown in, in uh, the, the essay that I read, and uh, you spoke about Bob Brown this evening. Was he, mm-hmm. and, I, and knowing you, I know that you're not going to mention yourself in that vein, but was Bob one of the uh, ones to kind of get things together, so to speak? Because the reason he I'm was, saying that. It was his assignment 
to organize the day of absence and day of action. So what he did is um, he asked the Pan-African Student Youth Movement, which we'd become, to identify youth organizations all over the country. That, that, see, that, okay. open to that idea? That's, that, now, that's, that's what I want to crack into, and as yeah. much as you want to reveal. Yeah. Because, in fact, yeah. that's what Richard was uh, kind of, that, what you just said. Exactly, exactly. So, he, so we, worked, we worked on this coordination, and we learned a lifetime's worth of um, things in one summer. And um, for whatever reason, and you all know, because I've known you guys a long time, I worked with, uh, I had the honor of teaching at Muhammad University of Islam for six years. And um, my own students in that building had never heard of the day of absence and day of action before. So 25 years came this past October 16th. And while our memory is still intact, we still have our notes from what we did. We still have minutes from meeting. And we, but that wasn't our make or break activity. As you, as we mentioned and chronicled, we had a long list of things for people who'd only been active five years. So in the scheme of a lifetime of service, it is a very pivotal um, phase of our development in terms of learning strategy and tactic. But um, we, uh, we, we worked under his coordination and we got, and as a matter of fact, the Pan-African Student Youth Organizing Committee help set up the local organizing committee in Seattle. As a matter of fact, the minister of the Nation of Islam in Seattle at the time did not even know what the local organizing committee was when we got there in August of 2005. But they set it up, and it was one of the most successful on the West Coast. So we definitely um, played um, a role in the process, and we benefited from that. So we just felt that the time had come to share not only what we did, but in the spirit of history and service and sacrifice, what our historical inspirations were. Richard, go ahead. What comes to mind is, okay, um, how did, well, one would be the um, Pan-African Youth Organizing Committee. How? Uh, no, 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 the National, National Youth Organizing Committee. Yeah. The NAACP was part of that, the Howard University chapter, the D.C. Rainbow Coalition Youth Contingent was part of that. You had some fraternities and sororities in there. It was so a what very... What I want to get yeah, to... it was a mix. What okay. I want to get to is the structural um, uh, uh, association of how they, how that come, how did y'all come together to create that before the event and then move to um, how did Bob Brown um, come to um in his, his so how did that you he, he was involved he was involved as early as march of um 1995 they had a meeting in chicago we now, didn't come into the we didn't come into the mix till late june of 1995 we so had already we were already together yes and yeah. now, no so what, what what happened what happened was there was a local youth organizing committee meeting called first. And remember, this is D.C., so there's really no such thing as local politics. Mm -hmm. So we were able to call different people who had offices locally here. And um, so we met on a Friday evening, and we were meeting. Now, we give Ben Chavis credit for this. We were using the Sigma's national headquarters because Ben, if you know his history, he's a Sigma. And to the credit of the Sigmas, and for those of y'all who are hard on now, sisters and brothers in the Panhellenic community, the Sigmas allowed us to use their national headquarters to plan the Million Man March. For those of you who didn't even know that, 
So, so I felt that it's important to, so we met in that building um, and we had an office in the basement for the day of absence and day of action. We worked, those of us in the Pan-African Student Youth Movement, we worked every day from 5.30 in the evening to 3.30 in the morning, seven days a week, so two weeks up until the march. And, um, but we had weekly meetings um, with the National Youth Organizing Committee every Monday from like 7 to 10 o'clock just to go over what we were doing all week, who so we reached the, out to. Right, wait a minute, for, for the National Youth Organizing Committee, who were the principal, uh-huh. or, the principal organizers? Some of the uh, names of the people who were involved in it, um, a sister named Deidre Proctor, a sister named Felicia Davis, a gentleman named Dennis Rogers, a brother named Osahan, I forget his last name now. So it was about, it was roughly about 15 or 20 youth organizers, a brother named um, Mikel Ba. Um, So it was about 15 or 20 of us that belonged to different organizations. They used to meet Maria Jones, who was one of the daughters of Amiri Baraka. She was involved in that process too. And all Um, y'all were in D.C. at the time? We were what? Were y'all already in D.C. at the time? As far yes, as- yes, many, yeah, many of us were based in, yeah, many of us were based in D.C., but belonged to organizations that were national in scope and character. Right. And um, and then we had a volunteer um uh, task. Um, Jenea Richardson, like I said, who was the president of the Howard University chapter of the um NAACP. Um, yeah. So you 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 had you had a lot of you. you so you definitely had a contingent of youth that used to be in that building who, to their credit, accepted that the day of absence and day of action would be our main focus. And so, um, so y'all were already in D.C. and y'all, um, y'all were already in communication with each other. Um, and, and then every every single day. And now this this will make you laugh. Um, the brother who co-wrote um or did the research for Manning Marable's book about Malcolm, Zahir Ali, right. who also was involved in that documentary. In, in case y'all didn't know, y'all probably know though, but he was um, the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan's personal assistant during the Million Man March. And because he was young, he used to come and be in our meetings. And he had just come out of Harvard University and it was a student organizer himself. So he was around us as well. So let me ask you this, and, 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 and Elliot, I, want, I just, I'm trying to, no, brother, go ahead. Get uh, oh, so here y- y'all in D.C. and were y'all in D.C. Um, at the time when Rodney King um, um, incident uh, um, three years occurred? before that? I, I live in D.C. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, all, all who, of all these different the members, uh, representatives from all these different the, the demonstration, the demonstration that ended up shutting down D.C. for a day was organized by the Pan-African Student Youth Movement and Black Neo Force. And, which, and was organiza- which was an organization, which was which was based at Howard University, mm-hmm. which was an organization co-founded by a brother whose name is not even mentioned when that organization comes up. The most popular member is the mayor of Newark today, Raz Baraka. Okay. But a, a, a brother uh, named Carlisle Seeley, and another brother named Chuck. I forget Chuck's last name, but they're the they're the three main co- and sister April Silva. They're the, they're the four most recognized members of Black Neoforce. So we worked very closely together. We, and so we were the ones that were involved in um, the main ones, organizations that were involved 
and um, shutting down DC, dealing with the Rodney King stuff. That was three years before. Right. So because because we had because we were known by this time five years in for doing this, it was only logical that we would be amongst uh, those selected to be involved in the day of absence and day of action because of its militant nature. Mm-hmm. And um, because, uh, you know, the atonement aspect of it, that was for organizations of that has spiritual and religious makeup. So we were, and, and because we, you know, we were students of positive action and had been engaged in campaigns ourselves by that point. So we were like, wow, let's try, let's see how close we are to a general strike in this country. So we were thinking of, like I said, we were thinking about what had been done in Africa during the anti-colonial movement. We were thinking about what had been done in the United States in the late 1800s. So we that we were just exploring. When you're that age, that's what you do. You, oh, yeah. and I, you strategically and tactically explore a multitude of things. I'm excited. So now, um, how did Bob Brown, is, was he sent? To DC to communicate with y'all, or he was based in D- he was based in DC. He lived in DC, oh, and he had just he had just come out of prison a few years before that for being going to prison for being a double agent of the Libyan government when 150 organizations in 1987 or organized um, a a um, freedom ride to Libya to defy Reagan's travel ban. Oh damn, I forgot that in terms of the 90s. In 1992, we organized a um, a march on the White House, challenging the United States' claim that Libya was responsible for the bombing of that plane in Lockerbie, Scotland. And we organized a press conference um, at our school, UDC. Norm Chomsky was there. Bill Kunstler was there. All of these different people who had relationships to Gaddafi's administration. And then we marched from minus teachers college which is on Howard university's campus we marched on the white house so like us and that same day we took krs1 the, the legendary hip-hop artist the lorton state penitentiary to um engage with our sisters and brothers who because udc my our alma mater had a college prison program so like i'm saying these are the things that we did before 1995 so even though we only had five years experience we were strategically and tactically equipped Bob was living in D.C., working for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, but Bob has a very unique talent. Um, He worked to get Harold Washington elected. That was a job. He worked worked on Jesse's 84 and 88 campaign and Carol Mosley Bronze campaign. So what different people would do is ask him as an individual to do certain things. He would do them, I guess, if they were in harmony with the objectives of the All African People's Revolutionary Party, All African People's Revolutionary Party. So when he spoke with us after he came from um, the meeting at the minister's house, um, I was in a meeting in my apartment with Bob and Kwame Ture, and we were talking about the Million Man March. And at that time, it was a brother named uh, Eric Buchanan who was in the meeting with me for the Pan-African Student Youth Movement. So that was the first time that he asked us for help. And we said we most definitely would love to be involved in it. So, so, and, um, so, so that was the first conversation that we had privately, but he had just come from Chicago. So let me ask you, let me ask you this in that, in that sense. So y'all were already working, been working together for five years. Did um, Bob, and I'm, I'm, and I'm trying to help us as a, a listening audience to be able to understand the somewhat of uh-huh. of the nuts and bolts of organizing. Um, right. 
it's, it's important for us to see when we're looking where we are, how, who is doing this work compared yeah. to people who may be saying. So did, did y'all already had a communication network. Did he assist, and I'm, I'm thinking of a command center, to be able to carry out this data? Yeah, that we, had that, we had that office in the Sigma's basement. Okay. Had, a dirt, had, had a musty basement that was like a boxing gym, but we loved it. And we used to go there every day, and he would share his experiences with us, and he would just talk to us about what was required. We had an unlimited long-distance phone call um, list. We had a list of organizations that we were creating at the time. And we were contacting them and they would let us know who they were and they would let us know they were coming to Washington, but they were having problems with fundraising. And we said, you don't have to come to D.C. Stay put where you are. Bring your city to a screeching halt. Get as many organizations together to be involved in the process. And, that, and then there was a discussion at one point that there would be a final call um, copy that would be dedicated to getting all the solidarity statements of all the different organizations. But unfortunately, that never saw the light of day. But we were collecting those statements. So we were getting statements from the smallest organizations to the largest organizations. Because remember, the, one of the biggest challenges was how broad would the coalition be? Would the polarizing uh, dimensions of the Nation of Islam prevent the march from having a united front character? So we wanted to shut down that myth because in Washington, we already saw the United Front character because we were bringing those organizations together, in particular the student and youth organizations who were all extremely enthusiastic about making a contribution towards that historic process. So was the students, as y'all were reaching out to the different cities, were you reaching, as students, were you reaching out to other students? Student and, student and youth. Student and youth, because they're community-based organizations that have a youth character. Okay. So we were targeting them as well. We weren't just talking to people on college campuses. Okay. Even though we know the rich tradition of student organizing, which we are a part of, which Steve Biko is a part of, which Kwame Ture is a part of, so which, which SNCC comes out of, so which the sit-in movement comes out of. So we're honored to represent that sector, and we try to do it with the, mo with the utmost integrity. But we went beyond that. Because at the time, for example, we were working with youth that were locked up in Lorton State Penitentiary. We were working with youth who, um, we were working with Ceasefire, Don't Smoke the um, Brothers and Sisters, who in our humble opinion is the most, most unique viol youth violence prevention group that's ever been created in our history in this country. So we were working with them. So we had relationships with many different organizations. And remember what I said before, um, through our time where we were started off as the United Pan-African Front, then we became the Pan-African Student Youth United Front, then we became the Pan-African Student Youth Movement, just going through prog natural progression, going through natural evolution. The United Front was always central to us. So engaging organizations representing um, the, the broad range of the spectrum of thought in our community, but representing our genuine organized resistance, that was as natural to us as crawling for a baby and walking for a baby and crying for a baby. So that was always part, that was always a main priority for us. It's always been about unity in thought and unity in action because unity in action bridges the gap when it comes to the thought. So yes, that's what we were doing from jump. We were doing it before the march, all the activities I mentioned before the march and it came full circle. We had, we had more experience than we realized when we put it to mo in motion during the march. Richard, you know, that's why I mentioned in the beginning uh, when I kind of roughly laid out uh, 
how we was, was going to approach this because what, what Brother Obi is saying, it takes extreme talent to not only be an organizer, but to to be able to move through different organizations. I mean, you 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 could see clearly that, Richard, because you do that to a certain extent. But that takes a talent because some people don't have that. I might be uh, a good organizer within, uh, just say, uh, the, uh, the organization I'm involved in, just make up a name, uh, the House Builders Association. But I can't work with other people. I just can't. I don't have that ability. I don't have that talent. When you got a man that, at the time, he was a youth organizer that could move through different organizations and get people to moving also, that's a talent. And that's why I wanted you on here to talk about, and I labeled it the anatomy of a, uh, a grassroots you, organizer. I, I, I love that title because we're talking about someone who was so incredible that in a uh, from 1954 to 1964, in 10 years, he built 46 mosques, created a newspaper, and then built, built two more organizations in a year and a half. So most definitely, um, we, we um, and we were going through, I mean, we were going through a lot, but I will tell you though, all organizers are products of their training. Okay. And the best, and the best attribute that we had based on who trained us was patience. Because yeah. Kwame Ture would all Kwame Ture and Mukasa Dada would always tell us, look, it's hard enough being considered on the most extreme end of the spectrum. We're ultra left, as they call us. We are the most extreme end of the spectrum. So the wrong language, the wrong attitude only complicates your ability. Now, you don't have to compromise principle. You don't even have to compromise on tactic. You can be flexible, but you can get the results you're looking for, but it requires patience. And from that patience will come more experience. From that patience will come more development. From that patience will come a level of sophistication. And this is why um, sometimes, even when we do things today, like when we, we did the appeal last year, pushing for Cuban medical personnel to come, people were like, the National Council of Churches, how'd you get them? And we said, must have been Jesus. Or when we were um, targeting the United Nations to deal with the police terrorism question in this country in 2007, and the first organization that called, got in touch with us and said they wanted in was the National Black Police Association. So people wonder, but first of all, you have to be able to target these organizations. You have to study what these organizations have done. So that way, when you study them and you know that they've done this work before, when you talk to, and one of the things that we find, and it's, um, it's part of the humor, when you talk to an organizer and an organization that may not be as versed on the history of their organization as you think, and you can point to them that at some point in the history of their organization, they've done this work before. So when they know that you know that, it helps smoothen the dialogue. It helps bridge the gap. So these are the things that you depend on. But at the same time, we talk about unity on a regular basis. It's the genuine desire. It's the burning desire we have. But objectivity um, precedes unity. If we don't appreciate what our organizations bring to the table, when we're trying to get them to get unite around something, you're going to sh send a message with your body language and your demeanor, whether you really appreciate them or not. And you might not even realize you're doing it. 
and, 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 and let me let me with um because the thought formulates mm. around this this point if if y'all don't mind um brother Obi, in the sense of uh, it's two two scenarios uh, uh, I'm interested in and, and to show to us because of what you said in relationship to the type of temperament that the organizer has to have in dealing with mm-hmm. a diversified group. You're 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 yeah. 50 members. You're young. Could you do you have a as two to the a moment when that your body language, the communication in this coalition was important to be tempered so that y'all can continue on. That 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 night, the the night when Ben Chavis came in that room and told us we were <laughs> going to become a voter registration task force. Yeah. So everybody yeah, was everybody, already in the yeah. And, and then when no, not okay. at all. We already we we under we already were having meetings mm-hmm. about the day of absence and day of action on the local level. Mm-hmm. That meeting was to establish the National Youth Organizing Committee. So the day of absence and day of action committee was primary objective number one. So the fact that he was trying to come in there and shut that down and turn us into voter registration um, robots, that was offensive, but we had to maintain calm, maintain humility, maintain poise, but it's still at the same time, let them know that ain't happening. And we were able to do that. It was, it was fine. Believe me. And then when, when he saw, that we were um, doing what we were doing. He it, it, and he realized we were seasoned. He realized we had a purpose. He realized that we weren't going to budge. What? But what we recommended also, brother Richard, we said, hey, some of you in here do voter registration, and some of you are more driven by that. So we had him select, like mm-hmm. uh, we had him select the people who would work with him on that, that were hmm. in the room. Wow. Some of them decided that that's, that was more in line and harmony with the makeup and direction of their organization. So we made that option available. We didn't shut it down, but we were able to make a tactical compromise that organizations who believe that the vote is the end-all, be-all, y'all going to hang out with him. But for those of you who want to deal with this day of absence and day of action and see this through, stay over here and the majority of people stayed over with us but we created an atmosphere where people who wanted to go and do that with him could do it and it would be no love loss it would be no hard i mean it would be no hard feel okay so that's what happened that's what happened and it was perfect and it was perfectly okay and you're gonna be in situations like that depending on the issue that you deal with where people are going to present some things that you don't have the option of touching but you say, if that's what you want to do, fine. Because they are things that some people do right now that based on experience, based on seasoning, based on training that we can't do. We'll isn't, never do. Isn't but but at the same time, you find, so you try to find, you try to find strategical and tactical mediums. And, uh, uh, go that, ahead. I'm sorry. What Kwame called operational unity um, to be mm. able to create that moment where um, we can be able to still um, have those differences and still work out the technical. It goes. Bro, let's focus. Let's focus on Brother Malcolm because Kwame mm-hmm. would have preferred that. Brother mm-hmm. Malcolm, in his famous grassroots message of the grassroots speech, said, "Submerge our differences." In 1963, strategically and tactically speaking, that was right on time. But today, we say no. We must confront the differences we have so that the enemy can't manipulate those differences. First, we have to really understand what those differences are. We don't understand what those differences are a lot of times. 
Like, for example, this Cuba work we're doing right now, we know, we know that certain people um, can't touch it, but we still try to push the envelope here and there to test the waters because it's necessary. We know that there are some people who are going to use the Santa Arias in Cuba as the ones who are over here as an excuse not to work with us at this moment, but that's perfectly okay. We'll still test the waters anyway. We know that there are certain people who will talk about uh, the racist disposition of a minute entity in Cuba as an excuse not to fight for the blockade, but that's okay. We'll still test the waters. So these are things that you come to expect. Our Zimbabwe work showed us that. And there are people who wait for mistakes to happen so they can use the mistakes as an excuse not to work. But you, if you already know that those are, those are dynamics inside our movement, you're able to navigate around that. You know, I'll, give you, I'll give you a perfect example of something that um, I think I can share. Nobody should be offended about this. But, and I'll tell you how the conversation could have went. Um, I talked with um, Dr. Julius Garvey about seven, six months ago, and I was talking to him about the Get Out of Cuba uh, way movement. And we were talking about, um, I just wanted to brief him on the fact that we're fighting for them to come to uh, the United States, the Henry Reed Medical Brigade. He said that he didn't agree with that, and he felt it was a waste of time. And But immediately... I said, okay, let me tell you about the second phase of the campaign. We are going to create a resource pool for their work on the African continent. He said, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Fine, not a problem. I could have, I, I could have, I could have, I could have um, taken that a whole nother direction. In, in okay. But yeah, I, 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 I could have, I could have, if, 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 if I, if I was, if, no, I'll, I'll be, you know, we are family, so I can say this. If I was immature, I could have said that's no more of a waste of time than trying to get um, President Obama to pardon your dad. I could have said something immature and silly like that, but what would that have proved? Yeah, now, now another, so, uh, well, one thing, one, one thing I wanted to also push for. Um, Brother Obi and, and Brother Elliot, you know, because what, what he's describing is when you say, Elliot, about having the skill and art of dealing with our our relationship with each other. The the thing I wanted to, um, um, Brother Obi, the, the, another uh, scenario that cha- might have challenged you, because as y'all are doing this work before the day of absence, day of action, we and the people that are involved, y'all are seasoned organizers. Um, and, and being able to show your effectiveness. I'm assuming and I'm calling it the state apparatus because Bob Brown is there. You know, it's, it's not only just watching, but interacting. Did you have, did y'all have a moment when you knew, and, and, and especially in this moment when this letter comes out about um, Brother Omawali, um, you know, uh, Brother Malcolm, Malcolm X, did y'all know that, that here is, we're being challenged by this outside force the you know the cointel force if i use that language and y'all uh-huh. have to address that is there a moment when y'all, y'all reckon- matter of fact matter oh man thank you so much for bringing that up people forget what else was 95 besides the march wait a minute repeat um, that brother Obi. no no uh my, my airpod dropped out i'm back okay not a few months before the um million man march was the public reconciliation between Betty Shabazz and the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan. Mm-hmm. Was it not? Right. And, and the, at the Apollo. 
And the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan said he challenged our community to help him push for a reopening of the assassination, a reopening of the case. Mm -hmm. Do you remember? And we were so excited because, remember, we're two years removed from the hearing on Congress where we were able to let John Conyers know over our dead bodies would he be able to hold a hearing on elected officials getting their phones bugged and we don't bring the FBI and CIA or make an attempt to bring them to their knees. So when the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan said that, we were so excited. And we thought about all these people who had blamed the Nation of Islam for his assassination. And we were thinking that they would be the first ones to want to be part of an effort of that magnitude. Remember in 1972 or the early 70s, the All African People's Revolutionary Party and the American Indian Movement called for a smash the FBI-CIA coalition. And the initial meeting was held at the Methodist Church in Washington, D.C. So we were thinking, all these people writing books about Malcolm, all these people lecturing about Malcolm, all these people pontificating about Malcolm, all these people trying to sound like Malcolm, they would definitely, without question, want to be part of that effort. But they weren't. Where were they? They went in hiding. And it's easier to criticize the nation of Islam, it's easier to condemn the nation of Islam than it is to call for a movement that is calling to create an atmosphere to force the FBI and the CIA to pull the plug, to pull the plug on their operations. So we understand it. So we were thinking about that. And then also- Let me me, me stop you for the, to get some clarity on that. Does that mean that y'all, as as an entity, outreach to um, individuals after um, um, the minister had made that, you know, made that. Yeah. Before and, that, before are, that. Two, and are you two saying years, that two those, years, two those years before individuals, that. The, are you saying that those groups, as y'all outreach to them, they, they were either saying no or ducking and dodging because they didn't want to be involved? Is that what they They still, they still are. Look at look at all look at all the lectures around Malcolm. Look at all the books around Malcolm. Look at all the conferences around Malcolm. When have you ever heard an aggressive call to deal with the FBI and CIA and the New York Police Department? You haven't heard it, but you hear people just talk. And what it does is it makes it seem like they're um. And this is where we get into saying, which we've said on this show before many times, um the big bad wolf syndrome you immortalize our enemies mm-hmm. so we should be going after the fbi and cia and since the honorable minister lewis farrakhan admitted he helped create the climate and you know that john ali was an agent and then but see on the other side of it it goes to something else another time we were challenged in, in terms of this military and in, in terms of homeland security you know that the honorable minister lewis farrakhan invited Colin Powell to the march. Mm-hmm. And we were like, oh my goodness, we're gonna have to um we're gonna have to walk away or block the stage or go and throw some blood on Colin Powell as an act of protest. Wait a minute, wait, 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 are you saying wait a minute, oh brother are you saying that y'all had that kind of discussion among so, I'm, I'm, so here's these young we were, we, we were discussing it. We were saying, man, it is no way that we can be silent if Colin Powell accepts this invitation. 
first of all, when you look at the most honorable Elijah Muhammad going to prison in the 1940s for refusing to go to World War II, but that's a nation of Islam internal dynamic. But we weren't going to give the impression that we were pro-military. If we were silent, that's what it would have suggested. But we knew what was going on in the country around the time. Only a year, right around that same time, Imam Warabdin Muhammad, who went to jail with his daddy in the 40s, became the number one recruiter for the FBI and the military inside the Islamic community in this country. And he said, don't use his past as a conscientious objective not to serve in this country's military. Show that Muslims can be the best soldiers. So this was the climate that we were dealing with. And after the march, we created a project called the King Muhammad Anti-Military Project. And we were dealing with the ecological warfare of the U.S. military, what they were doing in Puerto Rico, what they were doing in Panama. We were dealing with their assassinations because the key to Malcolm and Dr. King's assassination, making the U.S. government um, give full disclosure, it opens up what happened to Lumumba, how Nkrumah was overthrown, how Maurice Bishop was assassinated, how Thomas Sankara was assassinated, the bombing of Libya in 86. You're talking about going after the main staple of U.S. political culture. (laughs) That's why a lot of people don't want to do that. (laughs) And let's face it, let's not be naive. The military is one of the most glorified subcultures within our community. I did a survey with my students this past semester. I asked 47 students, what, do, what is the first thing that comes to their mind when they think of Tuskegee? They all said the Tuskegee Airmen. None of them said Booker T. Washington. Hmm. None of them. Mm-hmm. Part of that is a generation. So we're letting people know, you think they've done five Tuskegee Airmen movies? Because they like the way we look in military uniforms? No, they want to ensure that future generations consider it an honor to put on those uniforms. So that march, so these issues within the march, what we were raising. And then remember earlier I mentioned Zionism. And at the time, the people in our community that were talking the loudest against the Zionists We're not the ones at the table trying to create an umbrella organization so we could neutralize Zionism in the context of the African liberation struggle at home and abroad. So for young people that have embraced podium culture as the ultimate expression of resistance, those who talk the loudest at the podiums are not the bravest. Those who bang on the podiums and have them sounding like bass drums and marching bands are not the most courageous. So here, here y'all are young people, and over five to seven years, you're evolving in your ability to work as a fine-tuned um, or out organizing outreach team. Um, how um, how is age um, a, as you're getting older? You know, how is age and experience is having effective? Is any? Oh, it, it, it's going it's going great at the time because one of the things we used to laugh at. Is we would, when we were in our early 20s, late teens, we would see people 25 years old come to us, 26 years old. Man, y'all got some fire. 
you remind us of us back in the day. And they're talking about three years ago. <laughs> and, I, and we were saying, how, how do we have all these war veterans under 30 years old? Or even now, you see people coming before us or people who spent 50 years talking about one march or one demonstration or two marches and two demonstrations. Mm-hmm. And um, it just shows you. I had the honor of meeting a guy named Charles Malden. Y'all ever heard of him? No. no. Brother, Brother Charles was one of the original foot soldiers in the civil rights movement. Did a lot of work in the Alabama and Mississippi area. Humble man. Okay. So he picks me up from the airport in Birmingham to bring me into Selma to go and do some work in the schools. And he says, uh, you know, uh, yeah, brother, uh, nice to meet you. And then, uh, you know, we marched and we put on our marching shoes. It's time for you to put on your marching shoes. And we got to pass that torch. So I'm not saying anything. So he he says, yeah. He said, yeah, man, because uh, so have you. I said, I've marched a little bit. And he said, yeah. I said, yeah. He said, so how many times have you put on your marching shoes? I was like, ah, about 50 times in front of the White House. Ah, about 50 times in front of the FBI building. Ah, a few times in front of the Pentagon. Only State Department. Uh, National Police Headquarters in D.C. Only, matter of fact, I said, the only place we haven't marched on is the CIA. And right now, we're trying to create a climate where Africans simultaneously march on U.S. embassies all over the world at the same time. But I also realized at that point, which is what a lot of the younger people are confused about now, genuinely confused. They're so genuine. They mistaken visibility for impact. There you go. And uh, there are so many incredible things done behind the scenes. There are so many impeccable contributions that have been made by people you'll never get to meet because they're no longer here. And we're benefiting from their work and don't even realize we're benefiting from their work. And even if we do, we shrug it off. How many people have y'all heard at programs disband AACP and then close the program singing Lift Every Voice and Sing? We're going to take, listen, we're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll continue the conversation of the anatomy of a grassroots organizer. You can get involved in this conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. Again, that's 215-490-9832. We're in conversation with activist, journalist, playwright, and U.S. correspondent to the Herald. That's Zimbabwe's national newspaper, Brother Obi Igbona, Jr. We'll be right back. Listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard 
on time for an awakening media part of the black talk radio network for podcasting or live program scheduling hit them up at time for an awakening at gmail.com All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Escape the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com. Abibitumi.tv. Abibitumi.tv.com. Abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger. Run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Black Power. A-B-I. B-I-T-U-M-I, the only word you need to know to join your global Kometsu black family, to join your interconnected Kometsu black communities. Escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. game of power politics here in America, the Negro, namely the race problem, integration, civil rights issue, are all nothing but tools used by the whites who call themselves liberals against another group of whites who call themselves conservatives, either to get into power or to retain power. Among whites here in America, The political teams are no longer divided into Democrats and Republicans. The whites who are now struggling for control of the American political throne are divided into liberal and conservative camps. The white liberals from both parties cross party lines to work together toward the same goal. And white conservatives from both parties do likewise. The white liberal differs from the white conservative only in one way. The liberal is more deceitful, more hypocritical than the conservative. Both want power, but the white liberal is the one who has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor. And by winning the friendship and support of the Negro, the white liberal is able to use the Negro as a pawn or a weapon 
in this political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and the white conservatives. The American Negro is nothing but a political football. Since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on this blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we, who knowing that the people will always be free, we, understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor, we're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you. is also my death. Let me put this question to you again, because many foolish black middle classes and many foolish people who are eating well think that they can sit in America and watch this country destroy the African continents and watch this country destroy African Caribbeans and watch this country destroy Africans in Central and South America and think that these same people who destroy Africans abroad will not be the same people who will destroy them in America. There are fools in this, this country who try to claim that they are not Africans, who claim that they do not see color, as if they're not seeing color makes any difference in the world. Simply because you don't see color 
doesn't mean somebody does not see you as color. And that's the issue. And you think then that you can sit in this country while this same nation and these same people that you sleep with and marry and love and so forth can go out and destroy African people and not think those people do not see you as African. Even though you choose not to see yourself as African, you better think again. You're out of your minds and you're headed for death. You must understand that. Hide behind it. I am an American. Ladies and gentlemen, the death and destruction of black people will follow those kind of abstractions. You are listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening. With host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 832 here in the city of Philadelphia. We're in conversation with activists, journalists, playwright, and U.S. correspondent to the Herald, Zimbabwe's national newspaper. That's Brother Obi Ekbona Jr. is with us this evening. The topic of conversation before we transition is the anatomy of a grassroots organizer. You can get involved in the conversation, too, by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Three, two. A uh, couple other questions I wanted to ask you, brother, before we transition into um, the upcoming event at the end of the month. L- but let me go to a couple calls and see if they want to throw something in the mix. Let's go to 267. 267? Yes, uh, Brother Richard, uh, Brother Elliot, uh, when Brother Obi comes on the radio, this is tells you how good his mind is. After he talks, why did I see that and why did I think that? That's how fast that brother's mind moves, man. And it makes you know uh, what a free mind thinks. It frees your mind. I can listen to him on loving. Love his thought patterns. I, you know, he, he he's one of the ways to tap into the blueprint of our future, for our future, for our children, and what we need to do in our revolution and change. I love him. Thank you, Brother Obi, for all your contributions. Oh, wow. Thank you. Indeed. Thank you for your contributions, brother. Yes, sir. Peace. Let's go to 404 404. Hey, 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 Brother Elliot, Brother Richard. Y'all hear me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Brother Obi, I I like to bring receipts, man. Are you familiar with a document called Echo 6? Um, no, I'm not. Well, my brother, or, check uh, out. I don't think so. I'm explaining to you. I want you to uh, put in your browser, ECO6. Uh, and what that is, mm-hmm. man, uh, last November, uh, a lot of countries in the African diaspora uh, wrote a letter to all these Europeans 
that they're not going to pay not one more penny of extortion money, man. Check out Echo 6, man. Okay? Oh, it's okay. Yeah, okay. I I, I just didn't. Okay, I, I think I've, de- I've definitely seen that. And, um, uh, but you know, the only thing about that is, um, now they have to, uh, they have to stand on that, brother. Yes, sir. Hope if we get yeah. behind them, with them, say we with them. Yeah, be, and, exactly. Be, and and if that's the case, then that means, well, what we're going to talk about a little bit as we come to a close, th- mm-hmm. this is a challenge to ourselves to deal with that because um, uh, we have made this shift. We've gone from COINTELPRO to COINTELPRO. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that mm-hmm. is overt intelligence. And the United States Agency for International Development is the most dangerous organization that we're confronted with. Um, we're confronting on the battlefield right now. So until we see a unanimous declaration um, by these neo-colonialist governments under pressure from the masses of our people, ask those organizations, that organization, to leave the African continent, then we'll know that that letter is not a paper tiger. Yes, sir. But as, so long, but as long, but as long as they're there, mm-hmm. as long as they have offices in Africa, as long as they continue to be welcomed with open arms, then all that represents is a vision. Where that is a genuine vision to have, vision without program or words with good intentions. Yes, sir. Because I mean. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know why they got county in there, man. But see, but, but for me, what I did, what Dr. King said, I, I took my own ink pen and, and signed my own Emancipation Proclamation for my self-asserted manhood, man. That's what we got to do, man. Okay, especially men. Okay, take that mm-hmm. on. Sign your own Emancipation Proclamation, man. Like that song earlier played, get them motherfuckers out y'all mind, man. They can't stop us, man. I don't want to stop cussing. Every time I think about it. Uh, how we've been played, man. It's up to us to stand up now, man. Ain't no more victim no more, man. Okay? Exactly. I ain't playing no victim no more. Anyway, yeah. I, I love you, brother Obi. I love you, man. You, 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 you got some skin in the game, man. You ain't just talking about it. You beat about it. I love you, man. I'm going to drop the mic in with Richard and move on to the next episode. I love y'all, man. Talk to you. love you, Okay. Brother Obi. Yes. Before we before we left, we were joking. Um, yeah, we 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 can we can fight like we fight and still have a sense of humor. It helps us with our tranquility. I was talking about how many times I hear the NAACP condemn, and then the programs end with "lift every voice and sing," or how many times Karenga is condemned by people who celebrate Guams. So I mean, you know, that, that certain things just happen, and you know, we just we just have to keep moving. And I think that um. The the bastardization of methodology is where we are right now, where people hide behind their ideologies and their organizational members don't have the proper strategical and tactical training. And that's why we don't see enough projects, campaigns, and initiatives that represent our vision. And vision is nice, but since we're not in the ophthalmology business, we want the program as soon as we hear after we've heard the vision articulated so immaculately. So people um, aren't putting the energy um, into program development in the scheme of organized resistance, then we shouldn't be surprised um, at some of our shortcomings and our inadequacies, organizationally speaking.
the um before I kind of um get your recommendations or advice if you want to give some to young organizers because in the early 90s late 80s you were quote unquote that young organizer that you kind of looking back mm-hmm. on in the mirror yeah, before, a lot, I'm younger than a younger younger than the millennials are right now. Well, before before I get kind of get your tips because mm-hmm. uh, Elder Mikasa Dada and 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 uh, Kwame Ture and others mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. your dad advised you at one time and and mm-hmm. and and kind of directed your steps and gave you advice. So I know you have advice out there for younger organizers, which is key to mm-hmm. me. But before we do that, let let's go back again uh-huh. to. Um, Sure. To talk about pre-March, and you talked yeah. about being able to move through different organizations mm-hmm. to get their support. Now, two key people, because the march was held in D.C., mm-hmm. and I did notice this, and if I, you know, I didn't know the inner workings of it, but I knew how certain black politicians were spending it, uh, giving the credit mm. to Bill Clinton. But let's look back at the grassroots mm-hmm. and the the organizing uh, yeah. to to now be you, able to 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 get Willie Wilson, who is mm. a, a, a a pastor down in Washington and has a large following, mm-hmm. and and also uh, Mary Marion Barry, who yeah, I knew that's where you were going. What took down a lot of those barriers that they tried to give. Uh, uh, Clinton credit for talk about that being able to move oh. and to get support from different folks. Let me go ahead. Oh man, thank you. Oh man. Um, well, first of all, um, when it comes to Marion Barry, um, shame on those who want to reduce him to his tenure as mayor in D.C. Now, even though um, he he is to mayors what Adam Clayton Powell Jr. was to congressman, there is no question there. Um, and now, the number one goal of the Democratic Party is to make sure that we never have mayors again like Marion Barry. That's their number one goal on the local front, to make sure that we never have a mayor again like him. But let me just go back and say Marion Barry came to D.C. as a mandate from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who he is the first chairman of. And he passed up the opportunity to go to get a Ph.D. in chemistry to join our people's liberation struggle. So when people like Chris Rock make fun of him, they should know their history. Okay, now, um, he cleared the way logistically for us to have um, the uh, Million Man March. He, he, he secured the permits that were needed because when you embark on a march of that magnitude, um, he, him being uh, there was very um, instrumental. And um, so when you compare what he did to ensure that the march took place on the mall and you see the current mayor of D.C. getting kudos for spray painting Black Lives Matter across the street from the White House, (laughs) you understand what is pseudo, what is superficial, and what is genuine and heartfelt. Mm. but I had a problem at his funeral, man, because I, I was friends with his son. Um, his son was a good friend of mine. We used to go running together. And I talked to him about um, Marion's time in SNCC, which he had never learned about. And I bought him for his birthday, The River of No Return, which is the best book written about SNCC. 
and he went to SNCC's um, 50th anniversary with his father. And he said that's the best time he had with his father as an adult, meeting all those different people. But um, back to what you asked for, yes, he definitely secured it. Willie Wilson was responsible for putting 150,000 men in the streets out of D.C. alone. And um, we had worked with Willie Wilson before that. Um, when we shut down D.C., Willie Wilson was the only um, pastor that came out there with the students. And then um, shut down D.C. again um, not too long after that, after watching what we did that day. But he was definitely out there with us that day. When we did the... Um, Willie Wilson open, has opened up his church to the Zimbabweans, to the Cubans, to the Palestinians, to the Native Americans. A year and a half ago when we did the uh, fundraiser for um, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, and Malawi when they got hit with Cyclone and Die, Willie Wilson um, used, uh, let us use his church. So Willie Wilson is still fighting today. So, yeah, their role was very central. Um, the Clinton piece, I'm glad you brought that up. For those who were involved in the march from the Democratic Party side, the Democratic machine in our community, that was their prayer answered when Clinton said, we endorsed the march, but not the messenger. <laughs> and it was after that that the whole, um, but it showed us something very important. When what we will say to these young people, because that is what you asked us to address, and we have been saying to them, the challenge that we have whenever we fight, no matter how old we are, no matter how much experience we have, we must be the beneficiaries of our resistance, the main and the ultimate beneficiaries. No one benefited more from the Rodney King uprising than Bill Clinton. No one benefited more from the uprisings around George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor than Joseph Biden. <laughs> that is the cycle that we have to break. We cannot let the enemies of our struggle benefit from our struggle more than we do. That is a mockery of struggle. That is textbook manipulation. We have to stop that from happening. And that will happen through communication and through study. Um, I was humbled to do this tonight, happy to do this, because I know how the 90s is hurtled over. People go from the 1960s right into the Black Lives Matter narrative, and they want to completely hurdle over the 1990s. But I don't blame them, because when you look at the fact that our nationalism was so strong, that we have fraternities and sororities making kente cloth out of their colors. Mm -hmm. You know where we were when you listen to the music we were creating. And every time you have grassroots militancy bubbling like lava in a volcano, the enemy will do everything they can with their money to run ahead of it. Yes. So, and that is the role of Hollywood because the biggest um, fear we, we always say when we come on here, but we repeat it because it's for reinforcement, not because we're not creative in the way we can articulate ourselves. But the big, three best weapons we have are urban rebellions, um, the general strike, and this African cultural and historical reclamation movement. That is the one they fear the most. And that is when we, from the bottom up, come up with cultural and artistic expression of our resistance. Since I last hung out with you all, we wrote a children's play in Kiswahili called the Kiswahili Explosion, which focused on the fact that there are 14 million homeless children on the, in the eastern part of Africa tonight. And these were children in uh, Tanzania, in Dodoma, which has been the capital of Tanzania since 1996. Most people think it's Dar es Salaam. It has changed. And um, 
they this is this play about them third graders fourth graders and fifth graders using social media to call for marches and demonstrations all over Africa dealing with the ending of homeless children. And when you look at that in the scheme of the fact that there are 400 million people in Africa that live on a dollar 90 cents a day or less, which represents the poorest demographic of human beings on earth, where there are 784 million people. So we have 70% of the poor. That's why we did that play. And because we speak Kiswahili in Tanzania, speak it in Uganda, speaking in parts of Rwanda, speaking in parts of Mozambique, speaking in parts of Sudan, speaking um, in parts of Zambia, speaking it's now in South Africa. We They called on the Kwanzaa-celebrating sector of our community in the United States to join them in that fight. Then we came back and did a tribute to Dr. King with the children. We're doing another video tribute to Dr. Woodson and Dr. Du Bois this upcoming Friday. So when you have that type, or you, when you look at the creation of the Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater Company, of course Hollywood is going to, everybody from Rupert Murdoch to whoever are going to pour millions of dollars into creating warded down uh, illustrations of our struggles in Hollywood. So don't be disturbed by that. Don't get irritated by it. Don't get angry by it. To my cultural and artistic workers out there, Use that as an inspiration to work harder than you're already working. The changes will come from the bottom to the top, not the top to the bottom. Let all the superficial um, expressions of the African experience, let them all show their ugly heads. But the guillotine is with us. Don't worry about it. No need to comment on it. No need to have critiques on it. For every, for every watered down movie that they create, we're going to do four plays and the children will be in them the same children that are dragged by their parents to go and watch these movies will be in the plays that we do and we'll see who wins out we fought the democratic party we fought the republican party we fought homeland security we've never fought hollywood we've never fought hollywood it's that time and that means we may have to fight with some of our own but as Emil Cabral taught us a long time ago, struggle is daily action against the enemy, but daily action against ourselves. How bad do you want? I'm willing to walk through anyone that looks like me to get to my ultimate enemy. That's how bad I want my enemy. Really? So, yeah, so just to, just to, I just wanted to get that out the way. Uh, no, it's it's part of the conversation. It's, it's you know, the way mm-hmm. I see it. Before yeah. we transition over and talk about the second annual, um, the second mm-hmm. African uh, uh, in the world, uh, thanks Cuba, cultural tribute. Uh, mm-hmm. As a man that moves around mm-hmm. and have moved around on the continent, uh, you uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, U.S. correspondent to the Herald, uh, moved around to different. Your, I mean, your father was there as mm-hmm. an active uh, a participant with the, some of the greatest leaders on the continent. Uh, you mm-hmm. came up under that environment, uh, moved around to Cuba and other areas, and you see our people mm-hmm. not only on the continent, but in the diaspora. And then mm-hmm. you see our people here. Give our people mm-hmm. some perspective on, because, you know, I, I have a business, and and overwhelming majority of uh, my folks that come in there look like me. Mm-hmm. And you hear them talk about 
folks from the continent and from the islands in negative mm-hmm. terms. And sometimes it's reciprocal. Yeah, I was about to say it goes both ways. Let our people know that Mm -hmm. it's a puppet master behind the scenes here that allows Mm -hmm. certain folks to come here, tells them what to feel about people that are here. And when I say people that are here, I'm talking about people that look like them Mm -hmm. that are here, that develops that mindset. I'll I'll do it. I'll do it a couple of ways. Go ahead. Um, Okay. If you're talking about the brain drain, because that's what it is, okay. Understand that um, Africa, the continent, has the most educated people who migrate here, who come here. Africa sends more PhDs here than Europe does, than Asia does, and Latin America does. Africa sends more master's degree candidates, more college BA BA candidates, more high school graduates than any other... um, cultural demographic of people who touch U.S. shores. So, um, but they're the ones who are coming here that don't want to be part of the struggle in their countries um, to liberate and redeem Africa. They're coming here for a more comfortable existence. So for those of us in this country who are not part of the struggle here, but have lived here, have suffered just because you suffer doesn't mean you struggle. And what I mean by that is when we say struggle, we mean resistance. Because we have to um, qualify that. Because when people say, man, my struggle, they're talking about paying their rent on time. They're talking about paying their electric on time. They're talking about paying their gas and their water. They're talking about groceries on the table. They're talking survival. They're not talking about liberation. So it's in the same way that I'll tell people who say, yeah, well, my ancestors were here because they know of my cultural makeup. And I say, I'm not glorifying the cotton picker of the month or the tobacco picker of the month. Those Africans that were out there on the plantations that didn't fight, they're the ones who compromised you. Not only that, then you get into those who fight with the enemy. So those who fought, those who were running next to the horse with the net, trying to catch those of us who were running on the Underground Railroad, I don't celebrate them. Which is the same in the same vein. If I'm looking at Africa, you have something called the King's African Rifles. This was in all the British colonies. They were Kenyans who fought with the British to maintain colonialism against the Land and Freedom Army, or Malcolm, who Malcolm affectionately referred to as the Mau Mau. So, if you fought with the Mau Mau, you fought for our liberation. But if you fought with the British African Rifles, you fought to maintain colonialism. They were Africans who fought with the Seller Scouts in Zimbabwe, which means they fought with the Rhodesian military against Zanu and Zapu. They were Africans in Namibia that fought against Swapo. You have an African like Joseph Jackson in this country who was the head of the National Baptist Convention at King's height, at the height of SCLC. And he said civil rights through law and order, not civil disobedience, trying to sabotage the civil rights movement. So we've had, or you had the um, head of the um, National Baptist Convention, Henry Lyons, who denounced the march, the Million Man March that we've been talking about tonight. So for us, the front line is the ultimate equalizer. When you get on the front line, you're going to have people like Malcolm, whose mother was born in Grenada. People forget that. Or Claude McKay, whose poem, To Strike and Blow and Die, was considered the best poem of the Harlem Renaissance. He was born in Jamaica. J.A. Rogers, 
and Arturo Schomburg, who shaped John Henry Clark, all these people who quote John Henry Clark. Jay Rogers had, is, has Caribbean ties to him. Um, Arturo Schomburg was born in Puerto Rico. So that's only a conversation for the naive and the opportunists. If we're talking about liberating ourselves from this enemy, we're going to take fighters wherever the hell they were born. So the front line will solve all of that. So we say look to the front line. Kwame Ture, who you played earlier, he was born in Trinidad. He didn't come here until he was 10 years old. But he comes out of that Trinidadian tradition that produced Claudia Jones, that produced George Padmore, that produced Henry Sylvester Williams, who organized the first Pan-African Conference and that con- conference in 1900. So when it comes to the front line, the, the most genuine will we'll meet on that front line and we will embrace ourselves like the sisters and brothers that we are. And we will show everybody that blood is thicker than water. Those superficial conversations, they're, all, they, they're valuable because they illustrate why the decolonization process will make or break us. Okay. hope I answered that. Yeah. Yeah, you did. Um, the Let's transition over to the uh, second African in the world, thanks Cuba Cultural Tribute and Festival. You know, the first one, mm-hmm. um, yeah. the, I, I was still waiting on that video so I can post it on the site. You, but I did see. Gonna, but gonna, I, prom- I promise. I promise. I promise it to you. We've just been. We have. There were some precautionary things in terms of certain artists wanting their material that they gave to us for free to be showcased. So we're working that out, but you're going to get it. Don't worry about it. And oh, no, no, no. I'm not. You ahead of, I'm just, we're thanking you ahead of time for agreeing to streamline the second one, to, to, to web stream the second one. So no, 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 no. That will be worked out because um they were, um we'll be on Twitch TV again. It will be on Saturday at 6.30 and Sunday on 5.30 next week. And once again, as we celebrate Malcolm, everybody that, um, this is what we're doing. It's the second phase of the Get Out of Cuba Way movement. The first phase of the movement was is pushing for Cuban medical personnel to come to the United States to deal with the corona pandemic. And we feel that from that, we will encourage more young people in our community to go to Cuba for their medical training because For the last 21 years, they've been offering scholarships worth $250,000, a six-year program for you to go to Cuba and get your medical training. But to come back to the poorest parts of Philadelphia, the poorest parts of Chicago, the poorest parts of D.C., the poorest parts of Baltimore, and apply your trade. In the tradition of Daniel Hill Williams, in the tradition of Charles Drew, in the tradition of all the graduates of Meharry in Tennessee, so um, this is an opportunity to, um, because once the people see the Cuban medical personnel at work, it will inspire them that to take a different approach to medicine. So, yes, we want them to come here and work, um, train people who are not used to dealing with pandemics and work in harmony with the National Medical Association and Black Nurses Association, who they already have correspondence with. So that's that's what we've been working on since last year. But now we're turning to the second phase of the campaign with all this conversation about investment in Africa, briefcase politics, what we jokingly call it. Um, we're saying that for those of you who hang out in Las Vegas, I mean Ghana, you're going to Ghana like gamblers go to Las Vegas and Atlantic City. We're saying when you go to Ghana, 
take some medical equipment for the Cuban medical personnel there. Um, we are going to be engaging the African Union, the regional bodies of Africa, COMESA, ECOWAS, SADC, NAPAD, to get memorandums of understanding from them that they clear the way for us to provide technical and material support and potentially financial support for uh, the Cuban medics who function in their nations. They are 4,000 Cuban medical personnel functioning throughout Africa. For those of you who follow developments in Africa, you know that Guinea just experienced a second Ebola outbreak in five years. Yes. So nine times out of 10, and Cuba sent 400 medics there five years ago. And even John Kerry had to say he couldn't believe what he saw. But um, so what we're saying, and um, for, we know that there was a conversation before that the Henry Reed Medical Brigade should receive the Nobel Peace Prize. And when people asked us what we thought about that, we said, well, that's more explosive than the dynamite that Alpha Noble used to build, who the Nobel Peace Prize is named after. But anyway, getting back to the point, that's what our focus is. And I want to use this opportunity. If they are artists that are listening tonight, if people listening know artists that would like to perform next weekend, you can get in touch with us. It's still not too late. My Twitter um, account is at Junior Egbuna and hashtag uh, get out of Cuba way is the um, hashtag that you can get in touch with us. Yeah, we've graduated, um, Brother Elliot, since we won here last time. And you can and we're going to um, we're going to have a Facebook page, too. And people can get in touch with you because we want to thank you because Brother Elliot has been um, organized, identifying media who will support this effort that we're putting together next week. And it's in the spirit of Malcolm. So all of you who love Malcolm and swear by Malcolm, if you're not working to get rid of the Cuban blockade, that is the or if you don't support Cuba's medical work, that would be the best way to have Malcolm smiling on you. For those of you who say the Panthers, or what inspired you, this is what we say to you. Cuban solidarity is a staple of Black Panther culture. Asada Shakur is safe because of Cuba. Ask Mumia Abu-Jamal what he thinks about Cuba. We want to thank Elliot for posting Russell Maroon Schultz's statement on Cuba. Um, as he is fighting for his life, he said that he's calling for our people to, he called for the Cuban medical personnel to come to prisons in this country. He's the first incarcerated fighter to call for that. So we're we're tapping into all of these different people, and we're saying so. If you if you say the Panthers do it for you, if you're a Nation of Islam sympathizer or a Nation of Islam member, you know that the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan has called for the Cuban medical personnel in support of the Get Out of Cuba Way movement. We want to thank Brian Muhammad as the final call for doing a feature on the Get Out of Cuba Way movement, which he did some months ago. So we're just humble by all of the support that we've received. So in the name for all of you civil rights folks, if Al Sharpton is listening or, or members of the National Action Network, if Tamika Mallory is listening, if my son is listening, if Reverend Willie Barber is listening, if Dr. Cornell West is listening, if Michael Eric Dyson is listening, this is what we got to say to you fighting for Cuban medical, this get out of Cuba way movement, what Cuba is doing in the field of medicine is an extension of the poor people's campaign. It is an extension of the poor people's campaign. These are poor people 
poor because of a blockade that is aimed at stifling the economy and crushing their revolutionary spirit. And they respond by getting medical personnel all over the world. They have produced, since we were last together, brothers, they have produced a few more COVID vaccinations. So I know that you've been you've had Dr. Ali Muhammad on. I don't know if he shared that with you. But in the last few months, they've created a few more um, Cuban vaccinate, um, some vaccinations out of their Center for Biotechnological, their Biotechnological Laboratory in Cuba. Very powerful thing that they're doing there. And, um, but they have come out and said that because of the blockade against them, they cannot mass produce those vaccinations because several countries have leaped forward. Several countries have leaped forward and have made requests for those vaccinations. One of the vaccinations is called Sovereign One. It's focused on protecting people infected with COVID-19. There's another vaccination called Sovereign Two, which is about to enter the final human trial. And um, so this is something. This is something that we felt um, that it, this was very important. And they don't. They don't even have enough people to be affected, so they can't test the vaccination. This is how great their work is. So it's going to be tested in Iran. And the vaccination is on the way to Vietnam. It's on the way to Iran. It's on the way to Pakistan. It's on the way to India. It's on the way to Venezuela. It's on the way to Bolivia. It's on the way to Nicaragua. So what we are saying, and um, they've created just for COVID something called the Finlay Vaccine Institute. And then they have another vaccination that they're developing. One is called Mabisa, and it's after a female combatant in the war for liberation from Spain. And another one is called Abdallah, and that was named after, and that's after a character in, the, in a poem by the great poet Jose Marti. So we will send this article to you where this information was listed so Good. that you can help get that out to our people. So um, and, I, and also letting I'll, you know. Also, I'll reach out to Dr. Lean to uh, give us a little update because he was on about a month and a half ago. So I know. That's what I'm saying. Good. And okay. He, he's, one of the support, he's one of the supporters of the uh, Get Out of the Cuba Way movement. Mm-hmm. But so what, we're say, so what we're saying is as these NBA players are saying that they're hesitant to take these vaccinations, we're letting people know we can make a call for the for interferon alpha two B. We can make a call for Sovereign One and Sovereign Two and Mabisa and Abdallah to be put um, to be delivered to U.S. shores. But most importantly, like the Cubans, we believe that the med- the human resource is the most precious. We want their medical personnel here for the purpose of enticing our young people to go there for medical training so they can come back here. So this is a Pan-Africanist initiative, Pan-Africanist in the sense that we're focusing on the needs of the diaspora, but we're also focusing on the needs of the African continent. We're doing both. We're going to be true to our mother all day, every day. Africa's not our home. It's not our throne. So what we're saying is... um. That's what our focus is, and that's what we're doing right now. So the performance next week is to get artists of all sorts, regardless of your genre, to perform. You can send us a recording of something you've performed before, and you can do a PSA saying that you support the Get Out of Cuba Way movement, and we'll put your we'll incorporate your performance into the program. And what this will show us is this will show us what Ahmed Sekou Touré taught us 
who taught Kwame Ture, who trained Kwame Ture, he said that to be part of the African Revolution, it's not enough to write a revolutionary song. So to these artists out there who, who do music with a message, and that does play a role in the decolonization process, but music with a cause is the most militant way to identify with the struggle. Bob Marley didn't just make a song about Zimbabwe. He found out that Zimbabwe didn't even have enough money to bring him. He paid for his own equipment to be flown into the country. He paid for his band to come because he wanted to be there to see the Zimbabwean flag go up and the British Union Jack flag come down. He didn't want to just sing about their struggle. He wanted to identify with those guerrillas who defeated the second most powerful colonial army ever assembled on the African continent. I'm not saying we're not appreciative of our artists whose music has a message, but they have to raise, elevate to the next level, music with a cause. So for artists who understand that distinction, for artists who are willing to make the, the next quantum leap, you can still be part of this cultural and artistic tribute. Where there'll be photography, there'll be painting. It's not just singing and dancing, but it will definitely be some singing and dancing. So if you want to identify, if you want your music and your art to be identified with a cause rooted in genuine resistance, so beyond singing soundtrack on singing on soundtracks or Hollywood movies, if you want to identify with this, and when we so when, for all the believers in Malcolm, all the embracers of King. People forget the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey had 40 branches of the UNIA in Cuba. So for all of you who say you're Garveyites, for all of you who quote Garvey like Christians quote Jesus and Muslims quote Muhammad, this is your opportunity. We expect you to stand with us. We expect you to be part of this campaign. Like I said, we will be canvassing the African diplomatic body from the end of February and by African Liberation Day, we, our goal is to have memorandums of understanding from the African Union and from the regional bodies saying they clear the way for us to support, to provide technical and material support to Cuba's medical efforts on the African continent while we simultaneously fight for them to come to U.S. shores, just like they're in Haiti, just like they're in Jamaica, just like they're all over the Americas. And for the record, all the nations that allow Cuba to come, the Cuban medics, the Henry Reeves Brigade to come in, all of them are not socialist, all of them are not revolutionary, but you cannot deny their work. So that's the reason we came. And so in the spirit of Malcolm, who we know met with Comandante Fidel Castro and, was, and we're dedicating this tribute to a work, it's a working tribute to Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois and Dr. Carter G. Woodson. Why? Because if you know anything about the historic meeting between Brother Malcolm and Comandante Fidel Castro, what you know is that um, they had to come to the Hotel Teresa because no other hotel would permit them to stay, and they threatened to camp out at Central Park as an act of protest with tents. And the owner of the hotel said, you're welcome in Harlem. And there was only one person who had a one-man protest across from everyone welcoming them like heroes. That was none other than Jackie Robinson. So while he might have got into the major leagues, we know that when it came to revolution, he struck out. He struck out when they used to sick him on Malcolm. He struck out when he went and testified on Paul Robeson 
before the House of Un-American Activities Committee. He struck out when he was the first one in our community to, to condemn Muhammad Ali for not going to Vietnam. And he struck out when he condemned the Cubans, when all of Harlem threw their arms around them. So, um, so for everybody who, who says that they're ready for militancy, for everybody who says that they're tired of talk, and sometimes the main people who say they're tired of talk, they need to don't ever get tired of hearing and listening, because if you're hearing and listening, you might be the only one running your mouth when you say that you're tired of talk. So we have to be very careful with that, too. So, but at the same time, when you, you condemn, when you criticize a lot of things that are going on right now, when you express your dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction when you express your displeasure, this is an opportunity to provide an alternative. And we noticed that ever since the outcome of this election, those who were supportive, were very supportive last summer, now since Massa Joe, who, who is in the tradition of George Wallace, who is in the tradition of Eastland, who is in the tradition of the Kennedys, who is in the tradition of the Roosevelts. And the blockade on Cuba is a blemish on the record of the Democratic Party. So for those of you who feel that the Democratic Party represents heaven on earth, you should be involved in this. And like we said, when you see the appeal, you will see the broad support that it has all over the spectrum, from the most militant to the not so militant, because that's what we try to do. We try, um, Secretary taught us, he said, the job of a revolutionary is to even make reactionaries work for the revolution. And um, we're not saying that we're revolutionary. We, that will be determined when we're no longer here. We'll let the masses of the people, based on our service, decide if we were true to the path of revolution. It may sound boastful if we say it. So the hashtags are hashtag get out of Cuba way, hashtag unblock Cuba, hashtag Cuban blockade inhumane. My Twitter is at Junior Egbuna. And... Um, my email address is obiegbuna15 at gmail.com. So that's why we were on tonight. Of course, Malcolm was an excellent backdrop to deal with that. And um, we uh, we do we would like to come back the next time. We'd like to come back is maybe in April, and we'd like to come back with um, with uh, Professor James Small and deal with something called Malcolm Martin and the Eyes That Watch Us All. So that we can chronicle our history dealing with, um, since we're the generation after him, because we know he he, he, uh, he does a lot of lecturing on Malcolm. So we'd like to do a um, show live right here with you all. And we know you all have his contact information. Call him up and say if he'd like to do that. Not a debate, but a, a spirited conversation, shall we say. Malcolm Martin and the eyes that watch us all. But as we're talking about Malcolm's assassination today, we're so happy. We know that the CIA is not immortal. They, um, because of Cuba, we thank, we're glad that Cuba, Comandante Fidel Castro didn't meet the same faith as Malcolm. I mean, didn't meet the same faith as King. Didn't meet the same faith as Medgar Evers. Didn't meet the same faith as Emil Cabral. Didn't meet the same faith as Eduardo Monlane. Didn't meet the same faith as Patrice Lumumba. Didn't meet the same faith as Felix Movement. Didn't meet the same faith as Herbert Lee. Didn't meet the same faith as Walter Rodney. And they tried 635 times. We're going to target every hip-hop artist that has glorified the movie Scarface. 
in their material. Because if you know anything about that movie, it was a Cold War weapon to demonize the Cuban Revolution. The original Scarface movie was made in 1932. It was supposed to be about Al Capone because that's mm-hmm. Al Capone's nickname. But it shifts to Cuba. And the opening of the movie is Fidel Castro saying, if the Marialistas are not willing to adapt to the spirit of the revolution, take their behind to Miami, which is exactly what many of them did. And they joined the Cuban-American National Foundation, which was responsible for 90% of those assassination attempts. And when President Obama first ran for office he, in 2007, when he was campaigning, he went and spoke before them and condemned Cuba. And the only reason he went to Cuba on his high-profile field trip was because the business people in this country pressured him, who was the same contingent of business people who persuaded Clinton in the 90s to take Cuba off the list of terrorist countries before the Bush administration um, put them back on the outpost of tyranny. And we felt that that was important because, and we need to focus, like I said, we talk about AFRICOM, but we don't talk about the United States Agency for International Development, which was created in 1961, the same year the Bay of Pigs invasion on Cuba, the same year that the Peace Corps was created. And the objective of that organization is to use humanitarian aid as a shield to intensify the intelligence presence of imperialism in Africa and the Caribbean and Latin America. That's why Eritrea expelled them from Africa. That's why you have an alliance called the Bolivarian Alliance of Our Americas, Cuba, Venezuela, um, Nicaragua, uh, part of that effort. This is the, and when we, if we're able to finance Cuba's medical efforts on the African continent, provide technical support, that's the first step in showing them the door, getting Africa to show the Red Cross the door, getting Africa to show Doctors Without Borders the door. This is a very important project. We cannot state, and look how George Bush has become a born-again humanitarian. You know, people try to argue us down, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard, that they don't, that they didn't talk about Mr. Bush with the same vitriol that they talked about Mr. Trump. Then we have to record them and play for them what they used to say about him. And now in Ghana, George Bush, the biggest highway in Ghana is named after George Bush. It's not named after Nkrumah, and it's not Osajibo, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. It ain't named after Yaa Santua. Ain't that something? And you have former former African presidents saying that George Bush has done more for Africa than any ex-U.S. president. He broke a record for testing women for breast and cervical cancer. He's a born-again humanitarian now. So he borrowed the blueprint from Bill Clinton in Haiti, and he's using that blueprint in Africa. So our challenge is, and by, by, by helping the Cuban medical personnel, empowering them to continue to work in Africa, you can put a monkey wrench in George Bush's plan to become a born-again humanitarian. See, we have to be politically bilingual. We have to speak Democrat and Republican because many of our people look at their lives within the narrow confines of the lover's core between Democrats and Republicans. So that's why we're in here tonight, to deal with that. And we really feel on a practical level that this will resonate with the masses of our people. And this is something coming from the bottom up. You may not ever see us on The Breakfast Club with Charlemagne and Angela Yeelan and what's his name, DJ Envy. You might not see us on Sway in the Morning. 
You might not see us on Big Boy talking about this, but it's okay. Visibility does not make the anatomy of an organizer based on y'all's title. It's not about visibility. It's about commitment. It's about discipline. It's about production. If we were to compare the contributions of the people that history has been stingy to in terms of mentioning their contributions to the ones that are plastered all over the history books, the quality of contributions aren't even close. But the reason is because many of those people were not the least bit preoccupied with being uh, recognized. Going back to what we discussed earlier, we had a split in the 1990s in our movement. There were some young people who went for leadership, and by leadership, that meant visibility. They were trying to get an ebony as one of the top 150 most influential uh, people in our community. They wanted awards. We chose historical responsibility because our people in the civil rights movement, for example, they used Gandhi's model of leadership, which is being visible, which is being seen, which is being heard which isn't necessarily the most effective way. We prefer the bottom-up. We prefer the organizers behind the scenes like the Ella Baker, the Jack O'Dells, the Mukasa Dadas, the Bob Browns, the Kwame Therese. And sometimes people learn about your contributions long after you're gone. We're still learning. There are many people that don't even know that Dr. Carter G. Woodson started the first publishing co- all-African publishing company in this country. All we know him for is writing the miseducation of the Negro and starting African History Month. Don't even know the name of the organization he started, which still happens to be around. The Association for the Study is what they now say, African American Life and History. Then it was Negro Life and History. As we know, African American is to call yourself an African American is an extension of calling yourself a Negro. So we understand the narrative. We understand the chronology and whatnot. But um, that's what's going on. And when you look at, like I said, so we criticize people, each other too much, but we don't challenge each other. That's the other thing we learned from the 90s, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. We must challenge each other and move away from criticizing each other. Because when we challenge each other, we're encouraging each other to bring out the best in each other. Before I let you go. That's all I, that's all I got for tonight. But I know you, I got, but if you want me to deal with something else, I will. Before I let you go, uh, the, um, on Saturday, it starts at 6.30, and on Sunday, it's 5.30. How, how long uh, does each set uh, it go? Depending on how much artistic representation we get, and we're okay. on our Thursday. You know, last time, we, we weren't on all the time, weren't we? There was music was from about, all over. We had, artists, we had artists from eight African nations, five Caribbean nations, 14 U.S. cities, um, Canada. So it depends. And you know how the artists are, brother. They may... Hit us while the program's going on. Can, uh, can we get this offering in there? Because they believe in the cause. So we're anticipating. And for us, the other thing, y'all talked about the anatomy of an organizer. One of my biggest influences, Kwame Ture, used to say, organize, organize, organize. I promised myself, moving forward, I will say, follow up, follow up, follow up, follow up. Because we don't follow up worth a damn, collectively speaking. And we can do so much better. And follow-up is the difference between being free and being oppressed as far as we're concerned. And the enemy lets us mobilize and or- mobilize in large numbers because they know that the organizational follow-up is going to leave a lot to be desired. 
And those who are not interested in follow-up, they illustrate something. They're more worried about how history will remember them than what they contributed to history. We got uh, two calls on here. Let me see. Before I let you go, brother, if they want to say something to you or they want to hold on until after, uh, because we might spend a few minutes in open forum. Let's uh, call up. Brother Elliot, how you doing? Good. Hey, brother Richard, and brother Buddha, how you doing, good brother? How you feeling tonight, my brother? What's up with you? I know. I think I know who this is. Hello. Yes. Yeah. How you doing, brother Buddha? How you doing? How you doing, good brother? I'm good. How you doing? I'm doing fine. Our praise be to Allah. You know, brother Buddha, I just want to thank you, brother. You covered all bases tonight. You didn't leave one stone unturned. But I'm just I've been listening for the last hour, hour and a half, whatever the case may be. And, and Brother Boone, I mean it's from my heart, brother. You didn't miss anything. You covered everything. What, what, you went from, 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 from Marcus Garvey, the Minister Farrakhan, Elijah Muhammad, uh, uh, Kwame Torre. You know, I mean, you just covered everything. Mega Evers. I mean, you didn't, you know, you dealt with the situation with the uh, name, we, you know, we named these sports teams, uh, these derogatory names about, about our Native American brothers and sisters. I mean, you have covered everything tonight, Brother Boone. You, I mean, you just got my head pretty much like, like this, just, just, I'm absorbing it. I'm like a sponge, Brother Boone. I'm just absorbing it all tonight, brother. And I can't thank you enough, brother. You just, and you just, the sincerity, you're welcome. And the sincerity that's coming across these airways, your commitment and love for our people. And I just want to, you know, say this, you know, before you, before I sign off. I want to thank you so much for for this. I know this might not seem in the big picture for some of our people when you join in with the movement to be named, to challenge these derogatory names of these sports teams, you know, because like I, like I share with Brother Elliot all the time, Brother Boone, when I watch some of this, some of these sports shows, and I see some of these Negroes on TV, like the, like the Ryan Clarks, the Stephen A. Smiths, these Negroes are so ignorant, they lack history. And, and I know... And they have, a, and they, and they are in a position where they could speak out. But I know they not, cause they so scared of the colonial slave masters. They gonna go along to get along. But when I heard brothers like you joining these movements to try to, you know, show, you know, respect and and and, and, and difference to our people, our Native American brothers and sisters, it gives me some real hope and stuff. Because that's where a lot of that starts with the, with, with 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 these the derogatory names. Because we know these people, these derogatory names, a lot of times come from, like you said ceremonies that when they was killing our Native American brothers and sisters, the same mindset mm, that right. justified killing our people and, and chattel slavery. So we got to you know, fight these things on our front. So I think I can't thank you enough for, for joining them with these moments. That's where it starts at. And like I said, when you That's look at right. some of these ignorant... You're welcome, brother. When you look at some of these ignorant brothers on these sports shows, I know they're not going. Like I said, they're not going to challenge nothing. So I know it don't have to come from the from the from the grassroots people and stuff like that. Like people like you, your but stuff. You know, uh, but you know, but I will yeah. I will say this though. Okay. If we do what we're supposed to do. They'll 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 follow they'll follow our example. If all we have because um they they're saying things now on television that. They wouldn't have said 10 years ago, and that's no credit to them. That's credit to the people. But mm-hmm. part of that also has to deal with the fact that um, we appreciate the ones that are honest, that, that let it be known that they want no part of the militant resistance. And those are the ones that we need to – we're going to get them tickets to Zamunda and Wakanda. So they'll, <laughs> they, they won't be in the way. Yes, sir. Yeah, and it's yes, perfectly indeed. okay. They can. It is their job to do what they do. All we want to do is create an alternative to it. But we might end up winning some of them. Because let me give you an example, once again using Malcolm. 
Okay. The great the great Gil Noble, who did the best documentary on Brother Malcolm to date, Make It Plain. Yes, sir. He was he was scared to even go around the corner and hear Malcolm speak in person. Mm-hmm. He tells a story of how a, a, a Caucasian friend of his was going to Princeton University and came to hang out with him over the weekend. And he wakes up on a Sunday, and the guy's dressed up, and he's like, where are you going? He said, I'm going to Omos number seven. And he was like, for what? He said, to hear Malcolm X. He said, are you crazy? He said, man, I heard him at Princeton a few weeks ago. He blew my mind. I want to go back and hear him some more. So he said, after Malcolm's assassination, some friends of him let him hear cassettes. And he realized how confused he was. And he ends up creating the best documentary on Malcolm we've ever seen. So we are not justifying anything those folks say or do that's not in our best interest. But I just think, now you said you embrace revolution. Revolution is from the bottom up. So if we keep working behind the scenes, if we keep working away from the hype, away from the sensationalism, away from the superficiality, We'll be surprised what we can get people to do. That Washington Reds, the former Redskins, that took that was thirty years worth of work. Mm-hmm. I remember being a kid in the movement, and if you said Zionism, people would put their hand over your mouth. Mm-hmm. Now everybody, now everybody talks about Zionism. True, true. I rem- I remember a time twenty years ago when um. Elian Gonzalez, before he returned to Cuba, he made a request. He said he wanted to come to schools in our community and play with children because he hadn't been around children the whole time he was in Miami. Mm-hmm. And we we were calling around to many of our African independent schools. I ain't going to say who. And they said, hell no. But now some of them are calling me to get information on a medical scholarship program to send their children to med school in Cuba. It yes. takes time, brother. It takes time. So if we're consistent, mm-hmm. we will, matter of fact, um, a, there's a, ca- a Caucasian named Dr. Fred Mills mm-hmm. at Bowie State University, who you would consider a liberal progressive, I guess, does a lot of work around Cuba and El Salvador, Latin America's thing. So he came to me 21 years ago and he said, what do you think about the land seizure in Zimbabwe? And I looked at him and said, what made you, why are you asking me about Cecil Rhodes and Ian Smith and Jeffrey Huggins? And he said, I wasn't talking about them. I said, you said land seizure? He said, no, I was talking about Mugabe. I said, how the hell can he seize what's his from those mm-hmm. who doesn't belong to? That's right. And he ap- he apologized for his Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden moment because, as we know, Joe Biden is a co-sponsor of the Zimbabwe Democracy and Economic Recovery Act, and Bernie Sanders, when he was a congressman, voted in favor of the sanctions imposed on Zimbabwe. So mm-hmm. he had his Sanders Biden moment. So I saw him a few years ago, and he said, you know, you completely flipped me on Zimbabwe. And I realized if I speak out against the blockade in Cuba, if I speak out on the the sanctions on Venezuela, if I speak out about the overthrow of Morales in Bolivia, and I don't say anything about sanctions on Zimbabwe, I've given you every reason to think that I'm a hypocritical racist. 
Mm-hmm. So our militancy is our militancy is so potent we'll even flip the white man. That's not our goal because because right. that that's not our goal. Right. But the climate is so potent. Oh, and what I was saying earlier, damn, let me go back to it. The reason we're dedicating the show next week to Du Bois is because when uh, Fidel and the Cubans came to Harlem, the great William Worthy, the journalist, put a statement in support of the Cuban Revolution that was in the Afro-American newspaper. And W.E.B. and Shirley Graham Du Bois on their way to Ghana were sig- amongst the many signatories. John Henry Clark was a signatory. So for all of you who quote John Henry Clark, Y'all might not know, John Henry Clark was on the second delegation that went to Cuba. Joe Lewis led the first one okay. on Christmas on Christmas of nineteen Christmas weekend nineteen sixty, and wow. then uh, and then after that, um, Amiri Baraka took Julian Mayfield, Harold Cruz, who wrote the Crisis of the Negro Intellectual, mm-hmm. and John Henry Clark. And you know what? All the John Henry Clark lovers that I know. They don't know anything about the man's work. Wow. I told him, did y'all know he was a Cuba supporter? They're like, hell no. I said, yes, he was. So you had to show him. John wow. Henry Clark made three runs from Harlem to Monroe, North Carolina in 61, taking guns to Robert Williams in Monroe, North Carolina to arm wow. our people against the Klan. Yeah, I was born. So, 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 if you, so if you're willing, so if you're going to quote Dr. Clark in your lectures and Say that Dr. Clark is your guide. You better be involved in this Cuba work, because Dr. Clark was a supporter of the Cuban Revolution. I'll if you it. love Mary Baraka's poetry, if you love Langston Hughes' poetry, one of Langston Hughes' best friends was the was the African who was the poet laureate of the Cuban Revolution named Nicholas Tien. So the times are many. We're You're continuing right. the work of the people who came before us. And the best tribute you can pay to these people is to expand on their work. And this is the last thing I'm gonna say, and this is for the young people out here. We must not be intimidated of our history, by our history, as illustrious as it is. Because the way you interpret history determines the quality of contribution you make to history. On that note, thank you very much. Every time I come on, I always end up going over. Yes. <laughs> and I'm glad you all are hey, so listen. tolerant of that on here. Brother Bunny, hey, you're stay, beautiful, brother. Stay, you're beautiful. Uh, we, we're going to transition into a little open form, so if you want to come back, I'll put you on hold. All right, thanks, Brother Elliot. All right. Mm-hmm. Just put me on mute, bro. uh, Let's go to... Uh, brother six, Elliot? Uh-huh. You got somebody else? Let's go. Yeah, okay. let's go to 646 and see if you want to say anything. I'll, I'll uh, If you want to hang on until after uh, the guest leaves, I'll put you on hey. hold. Hey, hey, brother Obi, man, I think you may work with um, one of my nieces with that Cuban medical school situation. Who's your niece? Melissa Barber. I know. She she graduated uh, from from the school, and now I think she oversees the East Coast. Um, I know, I know who she is. I know who she is by reputation. Have never right. met her. Definitely know okay. the work she's doing. There are two. There are two campaigns. The Get Out of Cuba Way movement put out the first appeal in this country last year. Then um, the daughter of the uh, the great Reverend, the late Doctor Lucius, I mean Reverend Lucius Walker, 
who is the original um, facilitator of the Latin American Medical School Scholarship Program. His daughter now has taken his place. They have the organization in Harlem called IFCO. They're yeah, part of the national that, network or the national network on Cuba. So she works with them. We yeah. we were work, we put out an appeal. They supported it, but then you know their their support is mostly external to our community. So they put out an appeal called the Saving Lives Campaign. So we signed a memo, an understanding that we're working in partnership. But you know, when we come into the African community, we got to come African. So the thing yeah. is, I mean, we do we do work together. We do have correspondence. I just was on a conference call with them. So wow, that's interesting. That you, that's great that you're. Um, but what I, um, what I uncle. was really, what I was really calling you about, brother, mm-hmm. is you know one of the things a lot of people don't understand about you is that you're a culture critic, and um, they got this movie, man, American Skid. And I really would like to get your take on it if you saw it or not because no, I've never, I've never, no, I've never, I've never, no, I've never seen it. But I just want to correct you. I'm not a critic of anything. I'm a fighter. I'm a cultural worker. I'm a playwright. I don't criticize it. I mean, I mean, you know, we critique, we we critic, we condemn our enemy. We damn our enemy because we fight the enemy. Um, so I just want to be precise there. I've written 25 children's plays in 10 years. So we are waging cultural warfare. I'm a cultural well, worker. Well, that's basically I'm a, what I mean, Brother Obi. You know when nah, but you know when you no, nah, but when you no, nah, but but critic. But you know when you when you say critic, right? You or you, you think of like these film critics, or you think of these people that you see plastered over YouTube, whose only program is critiquing the shortcoming of other people's programs. And I'd rather, um, I'd rather uh, fight the devil to rule hell before I ever become a critic. You know what I mean? So I know you didn't mean any offense by it, but I'm just saying based on that label, I was like. Ah. But no, I haven't seen that movie, but believe you me, I mean, Hollywood is the devil's playground. So they're going to come with more propaganda, and we just have to be prepared to offer alternatives. But what is well, it specifically brother, about that? But I haven't seen it. I hope you get an opportunity. What is it called? What is it, it called? Let me, what is it called? I want to write that down. American Skin. Skin. Oh, S K I N. Skin. Yeah. It, it, is that it, it, on Netflix or something? Brother by the name of Dave Parker, who did the um, who did the Nat Turner movie, which was oh is, oh yeah, I've heard. He's hey, look, brother. He's a Dave hey, Parker boy. No, let me let me tell you something now, just real quickly about that. When it comes to Hollywood movies, let me tell you how far behind I am. I haven't even seen Selma. <laughs> now, what ends up... No, 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 look, listen. So what ends up happening because of the line of work I'm in right now, some of the things we create for our babies, you know, it just correlates. Like um, when my son was born, and I, um, my son was born in New York. I live in Washington. But my um, significant other, she was in New York having a baby before we, we moved. We all came back to D.C. So um, to welcome my son to D.C., we had a welcoming ceremony. I wrote a play called Araminta and Samora 
treating the sick, liberating the oppressed. And the purpose of that play was to show the parallels between Harriet Tubman and Samora Marshall, Mozambique's first president. And uh, he was a nurse, and his middle name is Moises, which is Moses in uh, English, and he's a nurse. So it shows us that men can be nurses and liberate, and women can be liberators. That was the point. And interestingly enough, if you know the history of Mozambique, they had to escape from Mozambique to go to Tanzania for military training. And they created a path inspired by the Underground Railroad. So we just did that. Then two years later, that Harriet movie came out, and people were in an uproar about it. And people asked me what I thought, and I said, well, we created a play for our children. You see what I'm saying? So we can create things authentic, organic, and accurate. So we don't have to, um, we don't have to really uh, patronize or indulge in our own confusion or mechanisms created to promote confusion. So he can be as dangerous as he wants to be, but he's not as dangerous as we are. If you, so it's okay. Like I said, man, and they can do whatever they want to do. It's their job to do it. We're telling Hollywood, come with all the movies you want. Come with all the documentaries you want. Come with all the television shows you want. Give us your best weapons. Hit. Give us your best shot. We can take it. You can't take ours. We're just disorganized. When we get organized, we will wipe Hollywood out. Hey, stay with us. We're going to transition in a little bit open form if you want to come back. Okay, brother. Come on. All right. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Well, Obi, thanks for so, being with us, man. Like, and uh, Y'all are done. Y'all are done with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I'll be looking forward to that, those links for, um, for uh, Saturday's broadcast. Yeah, no doubt about it. And um, Brother Richard, I want to talk with you um, off the air because I want to talk with you about doing some virtual presentations um, through the museum. Hello? Richard? Richard must have stepped away from his mic. Richard, are you there? Okay, no. No, no problem. But Brother Elliot, I'd like to talk with him about that because I noticed that we do a lot of things and that net that platform would be valuable, especially in Philadelphia, because um, we still want to penetrate Philadelphia further than we have. So um, we're always looking to do that. Philadelphia is very important, and we haven't done bad. You know, we got that we have great relations with Empress Chi, great relations with Dr. Asante, great relations with the young warrior Omawali Africa, um, great relations with uh, Russell Schultz, the son, and the Schultz family. Um, great relations with Brother Shamari through through WURD with Empress Chi made possible. So we're not doing too bad, but we can go deeper. So we want to continue to do that. Is that Brother Richard that came back? I hope wait, Richard. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. Okay. Yeah, Brother Brother Richard. Before I went, I wanted to ask you a question. Uh oh. Some of the uh, some of the virtual offerings we're doing with the babies. We mm. wanted to know if we could collaborate with you and do some programs virtually through the museum with young people. I, you we know, really, I, where we I, as, a, as a docent, I'm a volunteer. What I can do is ask. Yeah. Um, and start from there. Yeah. That, yeah, we're, yeah we're, but we're ready to go, though. Okay. 
always ready. So, so we thank we thank we thank both of you. Um, like I said, if there are artists who heard us tonight and want to contribute, um, at Junior Egbuna Twitter, we gave out the hashtag Get Out of Cuba Way, Cuban Blockade Inhumane, and my email address is O B I E G B U N A one five at gmail dot com. We thank all of you. Long live Brother Malcolm. Long live the Cuban Revolution. Long live the African Revolution. Thank you. We'll talk soon, bro. Richard, I want to uh, spend a few minutes uh, afterwards because I want to share that uh, this information here that I, um, in reference to what you were talking about, about that uh, article in reference to Malcolm. Okay. We'll take a brief break, and when we come back, uh, we'll still have some time, so you can jump on at 215-490-9832. We'll be right back. Listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Escape the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I, Black Power, A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global commits you black family, to join your interconnected commits you black communities, escape the digital plantation now. 
abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of his people. The brother said responsibility. Is it, is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us, or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table, the power that's in our community, the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America? We have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda. Thank you. message to the black man because the black man today is a man who has been made now almost into a laughing stock nobody takes the black man serious we're just used to be somebody's tool we are the sportsmen we're the singers and the dancers and we're also labeled as the pimps and the criminals and the drug dealers, and the killers, and the vagabonds of society. We're the bogeymen of British society and other Western systems. And we want to dispel that lie and destroy those myths and put the black man back on the map where we belong. Who is the black man? The black man is the original man. If it wasn't for the black man, no other men could be on this planet. We are the fathers of humanity. We gave birth to all of you.
How are you? How are you, Judge? How are you, Alderman? <laughs> How are you, Congressman? How are you? How are you, Reverend? <laughs> well, what can I do for you today, Reverend? You can't do nothing for me. See, that's what we got to be careful of. We got to be careful of who we bow down to. But see, when you get in your congregation and you talk this Jesus, this powerful Jesus that's sitting at the right hand of the Father with all power in his hand, then you go with your hat in your hand to the governor, to the mayor, to the president, begging for some crumbs. You have sold your God cheap. And you make the white man downtown disrespect all of us. Time for an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. I want to thank our guest that spent some time with us to talk about the anatomy of a grassroots organizer, activist, journalist, and playwright, Brother Obi Igbona, Jr., uh, it was an interesting event, the first one that they had, Richard. I shared with you some of the performances of some of the folks from around. And yeah. uh, this this ought to be uh, better than the first one because more people are involved. But uh, some of those performances, Richard, it was, I, mean, I mean, what can you say? They was, I thought I was uh, uh, at the, uh, the first uh, the Wells Fargo Center watching performances. They, they, were, they were fantastic. And especially live, I'm I'm just a fan of of uh, of like you know live bands and people playing instruments. So right, you know, right. I, I mean, singing is great. I mean, we love that. That's that's a part of us. But uh, it it just people playing uh, you know, you know, bringing performances using instruments. Really, I'd really love that. I hope I hope the time for waking audience get get an opportunity to um, you know experience it because it's. Uh, it's, it's, you know, as he said, it's a cultural production that has, that is to do something. And as you, and, and, you know, when I'm, you know, in the discussion about organizing, pulling all those all over from all over the world, really, to do that is a feat in and of itself. You know, um, and I, and I guess we'll bring this conversation up, you know, with, uh, with some of the upcoming guests, you know, him giving us the back, drop of um Bob Brown and some of the other grassroots organizers that organ that was the backbone of what went on uh in October of nineteen ninety five really gives us an insight on on uh these men their youth uh uh their dedication uh they wasn't getting paid Richard you heard him say that every day they were down there from five thirty and I guess that meant after they got off from work Mm-hmm. From five thirty to three in the morning, mm-hmm. you, know? you know, and, and, and also, you know, Elliot, I'm hoping that um, we get to see it, especially those of us who, are, you know, who are constant listeners, listeners, that we get to see what it takes to be an organizer. 
not just to say, okay, well, I know somebody who is, but that we can be able to look in our community and be able to define who is doing that grassroots work. And so that so that their names, because he said a lot of people, you won't even, like a lot of the people he mentioned, we don't even know. No. And look yeah, how exactly. instrumental they are. I mean, and that's the that's the disconnect we have because we don't have a real story of what it takes to make this happen. Because what we don't see is the people and the kind of training. I mean, five years before they even were, you know, engaged, the discipline, the training, the compromise, the struggle internally and externally. When we're making observations and criticism, if we don't take that into account, we're really doing a disservice and really trying to really deal with um, what I'm going to call nation management, even as just those of us who are just um, not participants, not actors, but watchers. We're doing the disservice because we're not communicating effectively to young people of what you need to do in order to really be doing work for your people. Yeah, so I'm I, well. I'll be looking forward to him coming on again uh, and uh, dropping some more knowledge. Uh, Richard, you mentioned to me that published report um, in reference to uh, to Brother Malcolm. Uh, had you read it? You read it. I'm assuming you yeah, read it. Um, I, I, well, I seen uh, when they um, the um, I guess the when they did the actual was that this I'm gonna call it a ceremony, you know, in delivering. No, I didn't read it. Oh, so you saw like the press conference or whatever. Right, right, the press conference. Yeah, the, let me, because they don't say when this guy died. Um, right. But let me let me read this. This is an Al Jazeera. It says, uh, ex-policeman impl- uh, implicates NYPD, FBI, and Malcolm's murder. Uh, a letter written by former undercover NYPD policeman alleges his department and the FBI uh was involved in the killing of Malcolm X. A former New York City police officer has, before his death, uh, implicated the NYPD and the FBI. Oh, I just read that. I'm sorry. Let me go back. A letter written by ex-undercover policeman Raymond Woods alleged his department and FBI covered up details of the assassination, saying he was offered uh, to infiltrate the civil rights movement and had members of Malcolm's security detail arrested shortly before the killing. On February 24, 1965, uh, minister and civil rights activist Malcolm X, 39, was shot dead inside the Harlem Harlem's Audubon Ballroom by assassins identified as members of the Nation of Islam. Three members, three men were convicted of murder and imprisoned, all eventually paroled. I participated in actions that in hindsight were deplorable and detrimental to the advancement of my own people. My actions on behalf of the New York City Police Department were done under duress and fear, says Reggie Wood, a relative who read Raymond's letter aloud at a press conference on Saturday. The letter said that the arrest carried out in February 1965 by Wood meant Malcolm did not have security at the entrance to the Audubon Ballroom where he, he was speaking that day. It is unclear when Wood died, but he did not want the letter made public until after his death, 
saying he feared repercussion from authorities if it came forward with his allegations. Uh, the FBI did not issue a statement in response. The NYPD said in a statement the Manhattan District Attorney initiated a review several months ago. The NYPD has provided all available records relevant to the case to the district attorney. Malcolm's three daughters, uh, alongside the Woods family and civil rights lawyer Ben Crump, urged the case be immediately reopened. So, uh, you know, Richard, we see something here that black folks knew all along. Right. Uh, this guy on a deathbed confession, uh, he figured he'll come clean and talk about he did things detrimental uh, to his people. Uh, mm-hmm. That's something he'll have to answer for mm-hmm. uh, to to the ancestors about what he did. Uh, the other guy that did the same thing in Chicago uh, uh, with the chairman, Fred Hampton, Jr., uh, Fred Hampton uh, he committed suicide. So this guy lived a long life. Malcolm's right. been going over 50 years, and he decided to write a letter that only is to be read after his death where he admitted his part in what he did. Um, you know, let, let me, because he implicates that the police department and the FBI orchestrated this, which again, uh, we knew the details or we, we kind of knew that without having the facts. Now, Hoover was over the FBI at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, Hoover had been over the FBI for over 50 years until he croaked in his bed. Uh, but let me read this. Then this came from a published report in 2014 after some files were released. Um, now it deals with one city in particular or a couple of areas in particular, but you can see that this was a systematic practice systematic governmental practice. I'm not going to limit it to the FBI. Even though the writer of this article does. This came from a published report in 2014 in a publication called The Nation. It's entitled, Just Being Black Was Enough to Get Yourself Spied On by J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. The files obtained during a break-in in media Pennsylvania revealed that African Americans didn't have uh, to have radical ideas or engage in violence to merit surveillance. But the files revealed that African-Americans, Hoover's largest target group, didn't have to be perceived as having liberal or even radical or subversive ideas to merit being spied on, nor was it necessary for them to engage in violent behavior to become a watch person. Being black was enough. The files revealed detectives that required FBI field officers to watch African-Americans wherever they are, in church, in classrooms, on college campuses, in bars, in restaurants, in bookstores, in places of their employment, in stores, in any social setting, in their neighborhoods, even at the front doors of their homes probably a few of them realized that the bill collector at their door might have been an FBI informer. An analysis of the files 
in the summer of 1971. Uh, then Washington reporter William Girder wrote that the files offered the public and Congress an unprecedented glimpse on how the U.S. government watches its citizens, particularly black citizens. It, conduct, it conducted such spying, he wrote, in ways that were unreasonable, as it would have been for the Bureau to have spied on lawyers who entangled, uh, were entangled in politics because everyone knows some lawyers in politics turn out to be crooks. Consider the requirements discovered in the files. Every agent had to have at least one informer who reported to him regularly on the activities of black people. In Washington, D.C., every agent was required to have six informers. Now, let, let me read this again and let it sink in, Richard. According to the files, consider the requirements discovered in the files. Every agent had to have at least one informer who reported to him regularly on the activities of black people. In Washington, D.C., every agent had required uh, to assign six informers to spy on black people. This requirement was so important in the Bureau that exemption from it was an elaborate bureaucratic process. Agents in the FBI office in a community where no black people lived were required to uh, specify by memorandum form 70-6 with a copy of the uh, residency agency. What small FBI office uh, so he would not be charged with failure to perform? <clears throat> wow. You see this, Richard? Mm-hmm. If, if you lived in an area where no black people live, you had to uh, fill out this specific memorandum form so you could be exempt from this performance thing. So when you're evaluated, you're not uh, coming up short. It says, so you will not be charged with failure to perform. An assignment to build a large network of informers throughout the black neighborhoods of Philadelphia. Now, you notice it's kind of jumping around to different cities. Right. An assignment to build a large network of informers throughout the black neighborhoods in Philadelphia included these recommendations on who should be recruited. Men honorably discharged from the armed services and members of veterans organizations, friends, relatives, and acquaintance of bureau employees, employees and owners of businesses in ghetto areas, which includes taverns, liquor stores, drug stores, pawn shops, gun shops, barber shops, janitors of apartment buildings, etc. Bureau officials also suggested that agents establish contact with persons who frequent ghetto areas on a regular basis, such as taxi drivers, salesmen, uh, and distributors of newspapers, food and beverages, installment collectors might also be considered in this regard. In other words, at that time, anybody a black person encounters or could possibly be recruited as an informer. The agent in charge of the Philadelphia office wrote in a memorandum that some restaurants and lounges were places where militant Negroes were known to congregate. 
the director regarded the need for black informers on campuses as urgent. He required agents to investigate and infiltrate every black student organization at a two and four year college and university to do so without regard for whether they had been disturbances on the campuses or not. We must develop a network of discrete quality in a position to furnish required information. He wrote all black students at Swarthmore college in Pennsylvania were under surveillance. The black student union at Pennsylvania's military college in Chester, Pennsylvania was under surveillance and was described in a file as peaceful, peaceful and loosely knit a basically dormant group. Nevertheless, the Bureau concluded that it would open cases on leaders of these groups that had a possibility of becoming militant. The most vicious of Hoover's operations, the worst operations, seemed to have been reserved for black people. For example, the Bureau enforced, the Bureau informer provided an apartment diagram that guided Chicago's shooter to Fred Hampton's bed to kill the Panther leader as he slept. An internal document, the FBI proudly took credit for the killing of Hampton and Mark Clark, another uh, Black Panther that night. The informer was given a bonus for his role in the Bureau, uh, what the Bureau called a successful raid. False testimony by FBI informer sent Geronimo Pratt at Los Angeles Black Panther to prison for 27 years for a murder conviction that was overturned in 1997 by a judge who ruled that the Bureau had concealed evidence that Pratt was innocent. Surely the most egregious among all uh, the political operations were the ones conducted against Martin Luther King Jr. Top FBI officials sat in their offices a few blocks from where King delivered the I Have a Dream speech in 1963 in March and listened to the speech on the radio. FBI officials decided the speech was from a demagogue who should be toppled by the Bureau. The following year, just days before he was to receive the Nobel Peace Prize, the Bureau sent him tapes intending as blackmail to convince him to commit suicide. The head of the Bureau's racial intelligence section, George Moore, uh, and that's the uh, guy that's uh, depicted in this movie, testified before the church committee and the Senate committee that investigating, uh, excuse me, that investigated all intelligence committees in 1975, he was asked that during the execution of COINTELPRO operations, anybody at the FBI had discussed the operation's constitutionality or legality. He responded, no, we never gave it a thought. Revolutions about the blanket surveillance and extreme treatment of African-Americans by the FBI suggested African-Americans' efforts to claim their most basic rights as citizens uh, might have been delayed for decades, in part by an FBI director who cautioned residents. Uh, or excuse me, an FBI director who cautioned presidents against supporting uh, their efforts, their demands for equality, he said, were inspired by communists and should be ignored. Now, this uh, this uh, writer, Richard, puts the onus on Hoover and the, 
uh, it puts the onus on Hoover and the FBI. You, if you notice that, right, right. Um, but I don't think that we should be fooled by that that rhetoric. Uh, the only thing that we should focus in on is the things contained in these files about spying on every black person, no matter who they was. Because according to the files, they had the potential to become militant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason I'm saying that it was a governmental, this, this uh, writer that wrote this article, uh, a European gentleman, tried to um, put the onus on Hoover. Is because, now l- l- let's, I'm, let's do, I'm going to just read this on Hoover before I kind of get your opinion and go back to these callers. In August 1919, a 24-year-old J. Edgar Hoover became the head of the Bureau of Investigation's new General Intelligence Division, also known as the Radical Division, because its goal was to monitor, disrupt the work of domestic radicals. The targets during this period included Marcus Garvey and Cyril Briggs. Cyril Briggs was uh, the um, African Blood Brotherhood, Mm-hmm. Right, Richard? Okay. Right. Uh, this was in 1919. In 1920, Edgar Hoover was initiated into D.C.'s Federal Lodge Number 1 in Washington, D.C. to become a Freemason at age 25 and became a 33rd degree Mason in 55. Now, the reason I put that in there is because some of our, well, I ain't going to, that's another story in itself, because some of our people run around in these secret organizations, Masons and others, and you got these avowed races that hate their people that's supposed to be their brethren. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let me say this, because this guy was in office over 50 years, and he died in his bed. But to put the onus on, quote-unquote, Hoover, uh, let me give you now. Hoover was first appointed to the office by Woodrow Wilson. Now Wilson was a Democrat, mm-hmm. but he was an avowed racist, open racist, like like the one that was just in. You mm-hmm. had closet racists, you had open racists. There's no different. Mm-hmm. Wilson just happened to be an avowed racist. He's the one that uh, was showing the film Birth of a Nation at the, the White House. He said it was like lightning in a bottle. Some of you know remember that comment he made. Mm-hmm. You had Wilson that appointed him. Now, he stayed in office. Now, Wilson was a Democrat. He stayed in that position under Warren Harding, who died, and Calvin Coolidge took over. Both of them were Republicans. Later on, the t- t- next term of uh, president was Herbert Hoover. He was a Republican. After Hoover, you had Franklin Delano Roosevelt who was in office a couple of terms. He was a Democrat. After him, you had Harry Truman, a Democrat. After him, you had Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican. After him, you had John Kennedy, a Democrat. Mm-hmm. After him, you had Lyndon Johnson, a Dixiecrat, or a Democrat. And then after him, you had Richard Nixon, who was a Republican, who the guy died in his bed. Mm-hmm. So to put the onus on a gay Edgar Hoover, like it was his working. This was a governmental working because you can see that he stayed in that position 
under whoever was, whether he was a Democrat or Republican. Mm -hmm. He stayed as the head of that organization because they felt that he did a good job with American domestic policy, period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The top cop, the federal cop, top federal cop. I just wanted to to throw that in there in reference to this article here about Malcolm. Like it's some type of revelation that the FBI and I ain't going to put it on it. This governmental agency was involved in conjunction with their, another arm of the governmental uh, 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 law enforcement, the police in killing a uh, black leader. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's uh, what, what I, what I, as you were reading that and it, the thing that that um, sticks to me on this is that Hoover, um, they asked Hoover to do what he did in relationship to um, the black community as far as it was the Europe, you know, because of um, the, um, the UNIA Garvey movement. It was the European Army Intelligence Agency that touched the intelligence agency of the U.S. to deal with Garvey and Hoover becomes the first one that creates this program. And you hear, um, you hear Brother Obi say it's a difference between having a vision and a program. And that program was because of the international reach organizing that the UNIA had so in that mandate that Hoover is in, as it relates to um, black people, black leadership, and and this whole thing of uh, looking for, you know, waiting for the, or looking for a black messiah, creating an infrastructure to prevent black people from having international connection because of our opposition, not just of U.S., but of the whole European alliance that the that connects the whole global control of what we now term white supremacy, which is the, the from the Atlantic slave trade, um, you know, and, and the stripping of the colonialism and relationship with taking all the natural resources. This connection goes all the way up to now when not, was it last year, year before last, where the question about What's that? Black identity extremist mm -hmm. um, was called in question, and even as the Congress asked, "Well, they is said, they go ahead. a white identity extremist?" and they they're saying they don't know, but the the memorandum or or the policy is definitely that there's a black identity extremist that the that the U.S. government has to be concerned with. And that's um, uh, and all of this time, black folks have never militarily taken up arms against this government in no way. But you see, to Hoover, and really, like you said, not it's not about Hoover; it's about the program. Yeah, exactly. It's been consistent from that time, early 1900s, to now. To now. And it's, and it's tied to a European uh, or the military intelligence community being concerned about black leadership organizing on an international level. So when you see 
um, Malcolm or or Fred Hampton. It's not. Um, it wasn't uh, just about them as individual. It's about their making the connections amongst national groups. Fred Hampton was bringing, you know, all different groups together, or as an organizer, and um, Malcolm and his trip through. Um, through the continent, you know, and 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 in the Islamic sphere, being able to have a influence that to communicate the black to black and Cuba to black people of how we should organize and what political lens we should be analyzing the the world politics from, and even to you know, as some people say, Malcolm, I mean Martin. When did Martin that he becomes a serious risk when his views become international as it relates to and, and internationalism as it relates to the military the military industrial complex or the military security concerns. But like you said, the, the last thought in my mind, if and I'm and I'm kind of leery of it, but if no, that they had created that level of a network of informers. It sounded like that network of informers was better than the network of informers that uh, they had to use for um, the criminal culture. If you had to have so many people under you as informants in the area, and that's what you were gauged on, that's a hell of a network. Uh, I know it. And see, uh, you know, that, that kind of goes to because our people have a tendency to trust Europeans. Uh, they trust these politicians. They trust Biden. They trust, the, they, they, they trust uh, of course, white folks got in the street hollering George Floyd, George Floyd. They trust that. They trust vaccines. They trust these Europeans' actions. But I just want to let this sink in again because this was a governmental policy. It says the files revealed that every agent, had to have at least one informer, one black informer who reported to him regularly on the activities of black people. In Washington, D.C., every agent was required to have six informers mm-hmm. to spy on black people. And if you lived in an area where no black people live, you had to file a specific memorandum, 70, 170-6, to be exempt from it. So you wouldn't uh, have performance uh, uh, issues when you come up for for uh, assessment in Philadelphia, an assignment to build a large network of informants throughout the black neighborhoods in Philadelphia, and even for folks that consider themselves, uh, I've made it, I've succeeded, whatever. Some of these terms that you hear, uh, some blacks say whether you consider them bourgeois or others. This is for you. It says, uh, we must develop, this is according to the FBI document, we must develop a network of discrete quality and, and uh, to furnish information. All black students at Swarthmore College, for example, were under surveillance, and Swarthmore is one of the elite colleges in this country. I thought that was interesting. All black students at Swarthmore was under surveillance. Now, believe me, Richard, if you were black and you graduated from Swarthmore, you didn't you didn't have a job as a janitor. I mean, those those you had a profession. You were probably a lawyer. 
you were a doctor. You, I mean, you were you were had status. All black students at Smallmore College were under surveillance. The Black Student Union at Pennsylvania's Military College in Chester, that was described in files as being peaceable and loosely knit, and basically a dormant group. Nevertheless, the bureau concluded that they were under surveillance because they had the possibility of becoming militant. You hear that, Richard? Mm-hmm. Even the ones that sort of, quote-unquote, you know, they're so meek and mild, they were still under surveillance, all of them. And you got black folks running around trusting everything these people say, whether it's a vaccine or anything else. How can you do that unless you don't have the proper information? Just like that scripture that I quote, every one of these programs, our people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. I think there's another scripture in there that says, if a man want to be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Let me go to a couple of these calls here before we wind it down. Let's go to 215, back to 215. 215? 215, are you there? Maybe they're gone. Let's just remove them. Let's go back to 646 and see if they got a comment before we wind down. 646. Hey, hey, what's happening, Elliot and um, Richard, man? Great show. Listen, man, you know, I don't mean to say it, but I'll say it, whatever. Why is this surprising in a sense that one at this time is shocked by this information coming forward. The interesting thing is the Negro behind it, Benjamin Crow. You know? I mean, think about it. Why would a Negro like that have really anything to do with this whole situation based on what he represents and who he usually represents? Because remember, let's be very clear about it. I think Obi said it the Negro ain't never run a case in his damn life because far as I was like, no, he didn't say it. The Ruba Benwood Hard said it today on our mix with our life about, you know, he's just in settlement. He doesn't win cases. He doesn't even take cases to trial. I can't think of one case that he's been involved with that he's took into trial in a sense that when I say trial, I'm talking about taking it all the way through to civil court. He's always took in the settlement, which the reality is what the oppressor will do is he will pay you off to be able to continuously be able to abuse you. So, you know, I'm just interested in, in you know, I had to keep my eyes and ears open in a sense to, yo, what's up with this dude? Why is this dude dealing with this. Why is this man, of all attorneys, going to an attorney like Benjamin Crump based on what his uncle said? What what is what is Benjamin Crump supposed to do? He's supposed to make the community accept this type of behavior what? I don't I'm trying to figure it out. It just it's 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 not something that us in the in the nationalistic or the conscious community or the whole teppers as they say or whatever 
of us that know and that done studied, that done read, COINTEL and all of this are shocked and surprised by this. I mean, the facts have basically been out there for over 50 years, but we just haven't acted in a fashion to, number one, accept it, and number one, you know, deal with it in accordance. What, what, what's to be gained by today? Two generations, what, what? Huh? Two generations from now, the narrative about Malcolm and the, and the you know, because right now they're in this anti-racist um, mode, right? And it's not for us, right? I mean, it's not for us. And that all of this, is, and, and I think you made a phrase that I touched it, you know, it's, to me, it's about propaganda, right? You know, and right. the propaganda machine is to educate. I mean, if you ain't educated, if you, you get most of your information from films then um, and, and, and popular news, then you're going to take, this is, um, this is the truth. And as you said, those of us who, are, who either live through it or, or understand close to it, we already have this belief, but soon we won't be around. But those yeah, but that, people and recognize that it's tied to, um, you know, and Elliot just reading that this is a, a military strategy because you're going to wait. He, whoever, all of a sudden, son or the person, going to wait till they die. So what, what, you, what even is there to prosecute? He ain't around no yeah, more. But, 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 that, but that's what makes movies like American Skin dangerous. It's it's probably to me um, the most dangerous movie that then came out in the last couple of years. All of them, because are yeah, but they're all dangerous. But you know, you got people out here who really don't understand the message and the danger of what's being put forward by the narrative. You know what I mean? If you if you don't understand history. And you don't understand how white folks manipulate and play with you. You would really be confused by that movie. You would really think that that's a good movie. I mean, if you are a black person and you think that that's a good movie, you're insane. Because the implication is that's what's so dangerous is that you could kill my child, I go and I make a certain move, and then I make the move so we can have some type of racial dialogue? That's sick. That's sick. And then in the end, and then in the end, what happens? The bad guy goes away, and I'm not going to tell the end of the movie, but you have to deal with only two consequences death or imprisonment. But the bad guy goes away and you think because of whatever type of conversation or dialogue, you changed him from being an evil, no good, devilish crap. That's insanity. Which, don't which, it don't work like that, bro. Which one is worse? That, which I, you know, I haven't seen just a few trailers, or Black Panther? Which one is worse? Yeah. Um, American Skin is 10 times worse because the narrative in Black Panther, remember, it's a comic character, bro. And who? And who it's a comic who, character. And who, who, 
who saved who saved them the most powerful most powerful nation in this fantasy who is the person that saved them using the technology of the most powerful nation the most powerful technologically advanced nation on the planet in this fictitious uh, uh, story who is the one that saved them in the end it's a, it's a, it's a totally it's a totally different narrative bro oh, don't even I got what you point I got your point but the question is who saved them it's not a it's not a matter it's not a matter of who who saves them it's always it's always the white man saving them bro it's always the white man saving them or being saved and that made two billion dollars but it's not a matter of money. It's not. It's you got to turn. You, you got something on in your background, uh, uh, Jay. Okay, yeah, I see what it is. I see what it is. It's it's what I'm trying to say is it's a it's a different genre, man. You can't you can't compare American Skid and the Black Panther, man. Come on, Richie. That's well, that's I'm not, that's, no, that's, I'm not comparing them. That's insanity, there, bro. The effect. The effect. Nah, you can't even compare the effect. Your, your point you is can't it compare the it's still up black community that's your point i i took it was anyway your point is the effect and if the effect is the same who which one had the most impact if the it's it's it, it, it's the impact is totally different than what the narrative is being put forward by the filmmaker. See what 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 they they Parker is doing is he's trying because number one you got to remember the man sleep white so that 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 shows his danger dangerousness right there because I mean as you could say everything now is going towards this biracial mulatto integration type dynamic with this white man that's what he putting forward now that's his thing he trying to create a class of people and in blackness that has a loyalty to the white man you know what i mean that don't have no loyalty to blackness this is this is what all this integration mulattoism and all of that is really about because he's trying to survive so now when you deal with somebody like this character parker makes that type of narrative i would have appreciated the movie more if it was a reverse he could have made the same statement that he made with a reverse into a reality type situation but what he did is he tried to use black people to justify a so-called forgiveness of evil with all that's going on with the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and all of that. Dangerous, man. Dangerous. He'd have been better off trying to do it with the reverse. He should have did it if it was me with a white person treating a black officer in that manner and trying to have that type of BS dialogue dangerous bro but i mean hey some people don't get it some people do all i can say is 
you know, you got to start watching these people closely. Because if you look at his Nat Turner movie, now you look at this, what next is he going to do? Because he's trying to create some sort of, some sort of racial um, dialogue that 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 ain't, ain't too right, baby. Reconciliation, they call it. We, well, I'm not reconciliating with no hunkies whatsoever, as my man George Jefferson would say. Because it ain't, it ain't about that, bro. It's about Obi and what he was saying earlier today. We got to unite. We got to move forward. We got to deal with this oppressor. We got to do whatever we have to do to get him off of our backs. I mean, we keep on trying to get along with, with him. What what what? Where's going to be our game? Where, where are we gaining from our continuously trying to get along with our oppressor? We're not gaining anything that I, that I see, that I'm observing. If you know, if we're gonna be honest about it, we losing, man. We losing big time because if you, like you said earlier, Richard, and and earlier and earlier, Elliot said it, man. Yo, now that Biden's in office, what's changed? If you if you ask me, I think the Negro been more quiet since Biden got in the office than a little bit. What what what's your take? Richard. Hello? Hey, Elliot, what's your take? On Biden? Yeah. I, I thought I you mean, were talking to Richard. Richard, Richard must have fell asleep. Huh? Richard, you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. I'm no, but sorry. go ahead. What did you, what did you say, Jay? No, I was saying, what is, what is both of y'all takes on 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 this whole situation, that, what's going on with Biden? Are, are, are you, are, I mean... Black folks has been quiet as I've heard them in a while, man. They got rid of Trump, and now Negroes are are like quiet as it's all get up. So I don't know what's going on with it. Well, when you say Negroes, I mean you. Who are you speaking of? I mean, I'm talking about black people. I'm talking about those that supported them. The Negroes, to me. Well, the, the people that supported them just got out there and voted because they wanted one racist out and put another one in. If you're talking about, <laughs> they don't see it that way. If you're talking about the 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 uh, so-called members of the Democratic machine, they're not going to say anything in reference to Biden. But they're doing their job. The other well, people don't... they not saying anything about anything, if you ask me. Well, okay, but that's I what mean, I'm saying. you got you got to delineate who you're talking about. And now the guy just got I'm in there. I mean, we... talking about those that voted for him. Well, they don't, I'm talking you know, about those that voted for him, Congress. I'm talking about most black people in general. You're not hearing anything. What, what's going on with where we at? I mean, the pandemic is still the same. Black businesses are still struggling. Um, they ain't get the money yet. There's a fight now about making it $15 an hour. They got this guy, Joe Mantrian, from what I'm hearing, is going to basically derail everything. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out what's going on. Where are we going? What, what, what's, the, what's the plan now for black people now that Biden in office. We just gonna be quiet and let him do do what he he gotta do. Everybody was in an uproar talking about we gotta get rid of Trump. Now now what do we gotta do? He he's not gonna give us he's not gonna give us our, our fifteen dollars an hour it seems. 
Um, you know what? What's the plan? What, what what's going to be the reason for 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 black folks to go out there and um, vote again? Come um come come next year. Got any ideas? Because I I'd like to know. No, and to be honest. To be honest, I really don't care what uh, you know what they do or what they plan to do. I was just reading an article um, today that um, uh, they took a poll and over half of the Republicans would join a party if Trump started it. So hey. they said, uh, "What does it say here?" Only twenty nine. Wait, hold it. Forty, according to a USA Today poll uh, conducted at Suffolk University. 46% of Republicans said that they would abandon the GOP and join the Trump party if former president decided to create one. Only 29% said that they would stay GOP. The remainder indicated that they was undecided at the time of the poll. So you <clears throat> you got the majority of their people said that they would join a Trump party if he started one. Now, you can look at that two ways. You can look at that the fall of this system here because it it only works if they have a Democrat and Republican party. That's how it works. And you got a good cop, bad cop, and they flip back and forth every four to eight years. That's how it works. That's how they figure it's balanced. That's how they want it. They don't want other functioning parties. But now you got a guy that can come up and then revved up the nat- the, uh, the the white nationalist uh, 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 which has always been the predominant for whites in this country. That's how they obtained this country. But he didn't revved up that spirit among his brethren, and now they said that they would join his party if he started one and abandon the Republican Party. That's dangerous for white folks. It well, is. I don't. I don't think it's dangerous for white folks. It's not. Okay. I well, then you it, don't. You don't I, understand his political system then. You don't no, understand. No, no, you no, have no, no clue. No, you have no is, clue about his, how his democracy operates if you don't think that's well, dangerous for him. And like I said, I don't care one way or the other, but it's dangerous yeah, for but, him. But, but, Elliot, it, Elliot, I know when you say it's dangerous for white folks, as no ifs, ands, and buts about it. But what I'm saying is when I say it's not dangerous for white folks, because that's the behavior that they choose to move forward with. Because I don't, I don't know if they've been brainwashed. I don't know if they've been hoodwinked. I don't hoodwinked know what from it what? Hoodwinked from what? What? Hoodwinked or brainwashed from what? Hoodwinked from the reality that this man is absolutely using them. Hoodwinked Who? from the fact that this man Who's is doing it them? only to raise money because now his con is in trouble in regards to real estate. and um, I, Well, maybe I, I you're think, the one that's hoodwinked because his feelings towards white nationalism, you think he's joking? Do you think he's joking? Um, yes or no? I, I, I think... I was think he a president, when, was he a president when he uh, advocated to those young men up there in uh, uh, New York be sent to the electric chair or death penalty for what he said that they did? Was he a president then? No, or was he, he just he a businessman? He wasn't. He wasn't president. Then. Okay, so his white nationalist ideas—you think that's a? He's just doing that as a joke or a ploy to get people to support him? Maybe no, you're I, under I, the I illusion. Think, I think. The, I think the people. I think the people surrounding him 
that manipulate him. Oh, he's being manipulated. Okay, well, whatever. I don't even want to talk about him, to be honest. I, I don't, to be honest with you, I haven't seen I haven't seen him in action. I think a little bit longer than, than you, and I think the yeah, people. Yeah. Okay. Well, that what, what does that mean? Him, what does that I mean? Because you live in New York. More dangerous than he is. Yeah. Okay. Well, whatever. I, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care one way or the other about Trump or what they do. I'm focused on what we need to do. I don't care one well, way or the other whether they start a new party or b- a party of bozos. I don't care. What we need to okay, do. Okay, so if they start a new party, what should black people do? Black people alone. How should we respond to it? That because that's that's the key. That's the key question and answer. If he starts a new party, how do we respond to it? Do we work harder for the Democratic Party that it seems is not giving us nothing or doing anything? Well, evidently you haven't been a listener to this program because we didn't talk about if black folks want to be involved in politics, they ought to do it independent of this, these parties. And focus in on uh, 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 controlling the politics of their communities, a la independent oh, black that. parties. So why would you ask well, me what should black folks do? I'm, I'm, asking, I'm asking you that because there's people out there who may have never heard that. Oh, I okay. mean, that, that's, well, that's okay. The, that's well, I respect that. I'm sorry. Move forward. I mean, okay. that's the only reason I asked it for you. I mean, I've been listening to your program for a couple of years now, so I'm pretty clear on, you know, what, what most of your responses are going to be in, in, in regards to that, but I know you get new listeners all the time. I mean, you know, hey, you know, I I was just seeing right there where you at that they done found them a darling, Malcolm Kenyatta. It, 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 I, I heard, I, well, I saw that he was on um, Joy Reid's this show this week announcing that he's running for Senate. Like that Negro got a snowball chance in hell of becoming the senator in the in one of the most racist states other than Florida in this country. Well, I mean, it it shows that now whether he win or lose, it shows one thing for people that's looking, is that to run for senator, and I ain't talking about state senator, he's running for... uh, Senator. Yeah, senator. That it takes millions of dollars, (laughs) tens of millions of dollars to do that. So... He just became Who's a exactly. He just became Richard. This guy just became a state representative. What a couple of years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's money. Somebody's money is backing him, and it ain't the community. When he was no, named, it, it, when he was named as an influential person in the Democratic Party, you had black folks here like scratching his head, scratching their head like, well, what? Well, first of all, he's a homosexual. So let's. Well, that let's ain't just, really got nothing to do with it, to be honest. No, it does. It does. Let's be honest. It plays. Uh, it plays. Well, wait, 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 put, put, it, put it this way. She, no, let me finish because you'll understand it once I say this. On her interview with her, she had the nerve to ask still. Now listen to the words. Listen to the words. She asked him, "What do your husband think of this? Is he ready for the run?" Why couldn't she say, "What do his wife?" Think of it. I don't well, understand that logic when dealing with homosexuals. Well, you know what, and and, and I have to clean. It. I have to clean it up when I said it really doesn't matter. It does matter because it's part of the European strategy to pick yes. to pick leadership for black people. Yes, you got we were talking about that earlier. Yeah, and, and see, uh, being being buying into an assimilationist mindset is a prerequisite 
to any person that they deem as capable of leading black people. You have to buy yes. into an assimilationist mindset. But after that, Each. after that, you have to be, because you see now that well, white sir, folks have focused in on a lot of black women being becoming leaders. And I don't have no problem with that. I got a problem with people's mindset when they are leaders and they're, they're looking to help everybody to help, and, and you are the per, the last one on the uh, the list to help and they it's look like you. And it's plus the the men, if you notice nationally, the black men it's 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 a it's a lot of black women that they're, they're pushing for these offices and the black men that they're pushing for the offices is got some type of homosexual lifestyle or tendencies. Each that's that's what they're pushing. Keep on teaching, Elliot. No, but I'm saying that's the reality of what they're pushing. Oh yeah, but you know what's so sad and funny is we don't recognize it. We don't we don't see it. We don't we don't observe it. I mean, look at all of the so called political upstarts in our community. The majority of them are homosexuals, if the truth be told. I mean, let's look at it. Stacey Abrams, gay. The one who cost himself so much in Florida, he's twisted sister. Kenyatta's, who's the new darling, is a twisted sister. Um, those in the media out in front, most of them are homosexuals. So, I mean, we, we're in a situation today. Is the power as, different? Excuse me? Is the power relationship any different between blacks and, and but yeah, I'm gonna say blacks and whites. Is the power relationship any different? Slightly, slightly, di- slightly different. If you, if to be honest with you, having the homosexual leading you, yeah, no, no, I would say no, so I, because said, their said, agenda is more inclusion than separation. And you, you shift into that. My my question was: Is the power relationship between blacks and whites? any different with um, homosexual imagery being projected, black homosexual imagery being projected through all the major outlets and through all the um, entertainment entertainment um, dis- distribution system, meaning movies, music. Is the power relationship between blacks and whites? Yes. Yes. Of course it is. Uh-huh. Why, why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't it be based on the narrative of what you presenting? It's just like uh, was conscious rap music in the in the eighties and the nineties that was replaced by gangster rap music, right, but, and no, now and that's today the, um, that's the, the madness. That's, that's Come the on, man! This it, it evolves. No, that's the point I'm trying to make because we're dealing with the imagery instead of the power. See, when you say yeah. that evolution of the imagery, that's not power. Black, those blacks in those entertainment things, they have more money and now they are 50 and some of them got their own little, they're still tied to, Revolt is still tied to Comcast or whatever, whatever. Um, they, you know, so all the entertainers or, or Tyler Perry still needs the distribution system of Disney in order, you know, he can have a studio, but if he ain't got no distribution system, so is the power relationship no. any different? No. And so we're, when we get caught up into the imagery, are we analyzing the power 
or are we just caught up in analyzing the imagery, which as you say, they change how the evolution of that imagery is looking. And as you say, the, a large majority of, and that's why I keep saying the next generation, because we can say, oh, we see that the power relationship is the same. The imagery is changing. Yes, there's more black women being promoted. Yes, there's more uh, black men who are gay being promoted. But all of that being happened, and there's more black people in in the uh, positions of the, whether that's the UN, the the military. I mean, these are black images now that are in these bureaucratic posts. All of those things are changing, right? But is the power relationship changing? Which is what you're you're asking. Well, what is the benefit? from the imagery changing. Well, there's none. Mm -hmm. What should we be looking at? Should we be looking at the imagery and analyzing and and giving um, time to that? Or should we be looking at where is the power relationship? When Brother Obi was on, he gave a whole group of people we don't even know that had in that moment, and that moment was a power shift. Because if you, you, you check it, Check it out. The State Department didn't want um, Farrakhan to get the money from Gaddafi. And you heard Obi say it about that. The, the whole thing of the Afrocentricity or Af- the African curriculum was being promoted. This is the 90s. They they even had, uh, what's that? Was that? Uh, the guy uh, that, that had the talk show host that had, had Farrakhan on and, and talking about the college students because all those college students were... Um, identifying with the nation, um, even had, uh, what's his name, had all the AKAs and, and OB was saying, all the AKAs now starting wearing kente cloth, uh, either kente cloth, little strips around their neck. The power shift, and then what happened? The rappers was, you know, speaking about what was, and then what happened? The imagery changed, and now we're at what you're asking now is, you know, even to having a a bona fide TV um, person who won the presidency through having a TV show. He won the presidency and now has the capacity to be able to change the imagery of gave the the white nationalists the gumption to even move on the capital but is the power do that surprise you well no that's but but that's not the issue it's the issue to me and that's what i'm with with with, when we get to this point is why we have to be able to look at well who are the new who are the new obis out there because those are the ones we need to be magnifying not the not the black gay homosexuals is running for senator senators and getting money from PACs or or the black uh, CEOs that is trying to get money from um, corp, you know the the corporate uh, community and trying to get contracts or or the HBCUs that's you know getting foundation money of 20 20 million dollars in order to be able to to promote the mindset we need to be looking at those who are out there and celebrating and supporting them and analyzing those creative productions, those organizing efforts, 
that's that's but if we keep saying looking at that imagery and asking the question well what does that mean for black folk? well it ain't yeah no it ain't gonna mean no change the change is in these other people and and we're and we're we're so busy feeding off of what they give us which they tell us is uh, tied to the military system and the military system controlled as Elliot just brought up about J. Edgar Hoover, the whole thing is to control the black community so it doesn't shift the power relationship. Because if it does, then it will have international implications with Cuba, with the Caribbean, with Africa. Well, that that's already being shown now that Biden's back in office with some of the changing... Um... Global policy, so yeah, I mean, but, but having black faces, so it ain't gonna be saying that white folks are doing it. This time, it's gonna be all black folks at the UN, at the military, at the domestic. All of these here, the imagery, and they're they're temporary, but they're at that level where before they were all white, all white male. You ain't seeing them, and and, and what Ellie said in my mind. Um, the ones who were at one point Republicans who were saying, and we can at least say, see their white supremacist. They're saying, well, look, I ain't even got to be concerned whether you consider me a white supremacist. I'll go with Trump, and you know I'm a white supremacist. And and let's let's wrap that up with, you know, Cruz saying, and we know Texas saying they wanted to they wanted to leave, and they saying they got a weather storm. They took themselves off the grid. And all those black folks who've been getting locked up, shot up, and everything else in Texas that we've been hearing about, now, not only are they under weather conditions like Michigan or Mississippi, they're going to feed off of them saying, you got to pay $6,000 for your electric bill. And what, and what are we saying? Is the power relationship different? Is that is that a part of, is that, Connect? Are we connecting the dots to that compared to the dots to dots to the creative uh, black creative? Because they only getting all these all these black producers now, all these black films. They only getting. I mean, now they got Netflix and all that. They only getting. They only getting the okay because those white owners of those production distribution systems are saying, okay, we need to. Give them that image, but what's that? What's that guy named uh, Wichigong just had the Supreme Court white corporation out of Philadelphia, Comcast, because Byron Allen wanted to be able to get a contract, went to the Supreme Court and said, "Black folks, we can't. We're not even going to say you, you the, the level, the bar that you have to raise to be able to." deal with that we are discriminating against you is so high it's impossible for you to prove it. And then they give them $20 billion. Is the power relationship changed? No, I would say not. So that's why I'm like, I mean, you know, and that's where I agree with Elliot. That those things don't make no difference. It's only when we're looking at, well, where is the, the people who are working, really working? 
18 to 20 something working to change the power relationship? What is it that we need to be able to do to support them? Where are they? Where are they in our areas? Where where, where are they in, in, in these in new medium outlets? Because Elliot also said at one point in the 90s, because the effectiveness of the radio, that communication system, what did they do? They changed the rules and gobbled that up. Black gobble. So what we got now? We on the internet and and, and and Facebook and whatever. And then the AI is telling us what we can say. They kick you off if you don't say the right thing. Oh yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. And don't say nothing about the Jew. Ooh. I, I I just don't understand. Well, I do understand, but. The power of the Jew is amazing, man. I I have had <laughs> friends that have got kicked off for YouTube for making a comment about the Jew. I mean, that's a that's a hell of a lot of power, man. And you can say anything in the world about anybody else and just dog black people, and um, ain't nothing gonna happen to you. But you say one thing about that Jew, boy, you in more trouble than you can imagine. But I mean, you know that that that's that's the way. The system is, but listen, man. It's a. It, it, it's good to see, man, Elliot, that you went four hours almost tonight, man. You never go this long, man. Yeah, I know. And, um, yeah, we we, we done went kind of over. We went kind of over. Because I know you played. You played hooky. You played hooky Friday, because you know um, we were looking forward to hearing you, man. But hey, listen, man. Enjoy the weekend. Um, we got to keep on doing what we're doing. Like you said, we got to find brothers like Obi to um, do what they do. Okay. And have a beautiful week, my man. All right. Richard, I know I, you, we kept, kept overtime. So, you know, if you got to do what you got to do, then, you know, it's cool. I'm, I'm going to take this one because I promised him he could get back on. I'm going to just take this one call. I know. I'll, 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 I'll check out because I, I definitely got to get it. What the? Right. Let's go to 215. 215. Brother Elliot, Brother Richard, how y'all brothers doing? How y'all? Thanks for letting me get back on, Elliot. I'll try to make real quick, Elliot. Um, I want to thank you first, brother, for having Brother Obi on. Good, excellent show tonight, my brother. Excellent show. And I, I, and I, I know I'm going to kind of lift your spirit. First, let me say this to the to the wicked list on it. As we know, Elliot, it has been mentioned already. We know we lost uh, radio icon Cody Anderson yesterday from WRD Radio. You know, and I did and and I remember I realized Cody was a hell of a basketball player at the at Central State College and stuff, the, the HBCU. Mm-hmm. And uh, my condolences go out to Cody's family and stuff, man. I mean, just a big, a big loss for the black community. I mean, not always agree with Cody politically, but he definitely, he definitely, you know, cared about the black community. And my, my condolences out to his family, man. It's a big loss, and I'm sh- hopefully details will come out later on regarding his death and and it, and the things factors was in play there and stuff, you know. So that hopefully that'll be come out at some point and stuff. And Ellie, I know too, Ellie, you was on down in the dumps this week when you heard about your boy Rush Limbaugh checked out. I know that kind of got you on the downside, but you know, <laughs> such is life, Ellie. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> and, and lastly, Ellie, I mean, and I know you was also down in the dumps about your boy Carson Wentz being, you know, ship-headed out of town. And let, let me say this, yeah. oh, I ain't going to spend too much time on that on that punk, but let me say this about him, Elliot. See, just go to show you, Elliot, 
what a, you know how white racism and white supremacy is. I don't know if you heard of it on a, on a, on a terrestrial talk station, sports station in this town. The host, you know, the Italian fellow, you know, with the initials uh, AC. He he railed against him. Now that was his boy back then when he found out what a punk he was. This guy was so immature. Now for the Donovan McNabb or Randall Cunningham or Michael Vick, any of these quarterbacks. Pete the Eagles had these white races would have been this guy Elliot had the audacity when they would bring Jalen Hurst and he would tell Doug Peterson he's not going out and stuff he said because he didn't want to be like he wanted to compare to be here he he wanted to show the fans that he the quarterback so when they would bring Hurst in the game a lot of times he stayed in on the field when the play had nothing to do with him it was just all about Hurst but he he intentionally stayed on the field because he didn't want to be like he was being showed up lastly. This guy was such a, uh, a malcontent. He told coaches on the team, whether it was Peterson or any other quarterbacks, receivers, coach, you don't tell me what to do. I do what I want to do. And Jeff Larry and, 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 his, and his Jewish uh, general manager, Howie Roseman, let that happen. I mean, it's just, I mean, this guy was such a punk in that, in that team. He was so, you're talking about a cancer. And, and, it, and it serves white people right in this town because for years they have tried to use that label on Donovan McNabb and Randall and all these brothers. True was their white golden boy Carson Wentz. He was you talk about a coward and a chump. He was the disgrace in this town on a team and in his true colors is shown. So now you got all these white sports writers and stuff for through this t- telling you what how bad he was now. We stuff but we already know anyway, Ellie, you know what I mean? But it just goes to show you how whiteness is protected in this country. It just never stops, man. But let me say this real quick couple of things on 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 Malcolm Kenyatta since Jay brought him up. You know, Elliot I agree with Jay in this respect. He's going to get his ass kicked in the primary. As you know, he's going to run against John Fetterman, the lieutenant governor. And I, and I like some of the things Fetterman has said about prison reform and all that stuff. But, you know, I don't know if you heard, Fetterman was was accused of pulling a gun on the young black man. You heard about that, Ray Elliott? No, no, no. Yeah, he was accused. He said that he did it. He said he 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 apologized, but he said he did it because he felt this girl, this young black man was a suspect. And so the real of course, Black man to be innocent. He was the wrong person, but you know it's in white America that happens. But my point is that he's going to get his ass kicked in the primary, and the reason why because unless only way Kenyatta has a chance of even coming out the primary to face his Republican opponent is because only way he will have a chance, Ellie, is because he has to have a strong turnout. And as you all know, Ellie, you know you know the dynamics and the geographics of Pennsylvania. The three states that got the largest black populations are Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Harrisburg, which happen to be the capital. You got large black populations in those three cities in, in Pennsylvania. If he can get a high turnout of those people, and I'm sure he got a chance, but if he don't get that high turnout in the black community for those three, he's he going to get his behind kicked even in the primary. And let's just, and let's just say, Brother Elliot, for the sake of argument, that he does even win that. That he comes out and beat Fetterman, which I don't think he's going to even beat Fetterman in the primary. He's going to lose even the statewide race. Again, he's going to have to get a, a normal back turnout. I'm going to tell you why. Remember Elliot from back when Len Swine, the former Pittsburgh Spiller wide receiver, ran against Rendell? See, Elliot, and I've been at See, Elliot, you're a type of brother. You pay attention to things. But I bet you this was right about people's heads when Len Swine ran against Rendell when Rendell ran for re-election that time. Now, Len Swine is a Hall of Fame receiver, played for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He's, 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 he's loved by football fans throughout western Pennsylvania. Now, Aaron Dell is a white man, and not only a white man, Brother Elliot, in the town from Wiccan List of Orders and Brother Richard, he's Jewish. Now, those white racists 
all up in that state of Pennsylvania, they they claim to hate black. They came. They claim to hate Jews just as much as they hate black people, which we know in a lot of cases is true. But they put their racism aside. Think about this, brother Elliot. They put their racism aside and still voted for Rendell, even though he's a white Jew. They voted for Rendell over when it's why. Remember that, Elliot? Yeah. They, mm-hmm. they they voted for him. Oh, because because even though black Jew. Face claim they still couldn't stomach the fact of a black man getting a black man's vote. You know this black man was big when they spoke stills when they was winning Super Bowls back then. So they still voted for Rendell. So this and the same thing will happen with Malcolm Kenyatta. He has a double whammy. He is he a black man, but he's a homosexual black man. So those white bigots up upstate Pennsylvania, they'll say hell no before they vote for they have they wouldn't they didn't vote for a black straight man like Lynn Swan who's a bad football star and stuff. You know they're not gonna vote for for a guy like Malcolm Kenyatta. Like I said, he will have to get uh, 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 an insurmountable amount of black votes and stuff to, to beat to, to beat uh, his Republican opponent in in the uh, general election, which I just not think will happen because he's going to only run into opposition there. He will run opposition even more on black people. You know, in, the, in the black community, Elliot, you got the the so called, for lack of a better word, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Elliot. He got he gonna run into the so called black conservative. And when I say conservatives, I don't mean it like the ones that that part of part of a Rush Limbaugh type, but you know, black people that's that's conservative in their religious belief, whether it's is whether it's Islam, Judaism, Christianity, they got a problem with homosexuality. They not gonna support him either. So I mean, so he's gonna run into all those kind of things. So he faced an uphill battle just like I said, just getting out of the primary against Sutterman. But even if he managed to win the primary, he gonna have even more insurmountable battle winning on a on a statewide because he's going to need white folks and black folks from the whole state of Pennsylvania. Not, like you said, Elliot, he's not running for no state rep. He's running for us. He can just get the black people in a certain section of Philadelphia to vote, and to vote for him. He can win. He's running for a statewide officer. He got, he fits an uphill battle. So I don't think he's I don't think he's going to win anyway. That's just my that's just my view. I just, I, just, I just think he got too much things going against him and everything, you know. And, 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 and Elliot, lastly on this, uh, with Brother Malcolm, I think, I'm glad you read that, Elliot, because, again, you, you see time and time again, Elliot, like you said about Ch- Chairman, our dear brother, Chairman Fred Hapton, may God be pleased with him, because you, 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 you and Richard had his son on, on, on before. And, I mean, you see clearly the pain that these traders cause our people when they sell our people out and they cost the life of these brave sisters and brothers that's that's out here fighting for our people, man, with their traitorous actions. Like you said, the Negro that sold out Fred, Brother Fred Hampton and, and Brother Mark Clark, he committed suicide. And, and, and I'm not an evil person, Alec, but may he ride in hell. I don't have no mercy, mercy for him at all because for, for what he did and stuff, man. You know what I mean? And, and you notice, whenever these traders do these things, the truth always comes out down the line. Like the individual, that photographer who was rolling around with Dr. King and Reverend Abbott nasty and all the brothers doing the civil rights struggle they trusted him because he's a black man so it's only natural trust you this man broke bread with dr king and them ate with them stepped in the hotel with them and they trust him they said well you know he's a black man we don't mind him being our photographer so he can record our our, our every move our history so it can be you know taught to our children and the whole time dr kim didn't know that this nigga was nothing but a paid informant for the fbi and, and he may have, his actions may have 
directly, Elliot, or indirectly led to Dr. King's demise that day or, or, or in, 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 uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. You know what I mean? Because he was giving Hoover all, them, all kinds of information and everything like that. I mean, the, the damage that these Nick, these traders do, man, you just, you just can't put a price tag on Elliot. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. You just can't put up with the trust that they do, man. It costs our people our lives, whether it be Fred Hampton, whether it be Dr. King, whether it be Malcolm X and stuff, these traitors and stuff, man. And this cop, now he wait on his deathbed, Ray Wood, he wait till he's dead or whatever. I mean, he didn't think about all the stuff he was doing back then to help this white man help kill him. The stuff of the man then, you know what I mean? I mean these these, these niggas, man, they leave they, they they are so they, they are so sorry excuses for 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 Herman Bands, for lack of a better word, because like because like you said, Ellie, you and Brother Richard correctly said it. They telling us about they was FBI and it's in a. Um, New York Police Department conspired to kill Brother Malcolm. That ain't no revelation. We already anybody got the same mind already already knew that. All they doing is just making it making it point out for people that might not be familiar with that and stuff like that. We already know that they've been doing this stuff for years. They've been they've been been, been co-opting and killing our people or plotting to kill our our leadership. The same forces that killed Brother Malcolm are the same forces that killed Dr. King, that killed Mega Evers, Maurice Bishop, I mean and I mean so on and so forth, Brother Kadai on the international level, the same forces. I mean, you know, these people, they, 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 their games don't change. They, 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 their ammo don't change. They're they wicked and, and the diabolic and, and stuff. Hell, hell, and, I, and I close with these last couple of comments. I know you're rich. You want to you know, call it a night. Like you said about this, and Ellie, you were the first one, Brother Elliot, to point out to our people, watch this guy that Joe Biden put up as the um, – a secretary of the, of the Pentagon, of the defense and stuff, this uh, general. I mean, like you said, this guy is not a nice guy. See, some of us, we get caught up in a skin game. Oh, he's a black man. Well, don't forget, Clarence Thomas was a black man. You know what I mean? This guy is no joke. See, they'll, see, they'll use a nigga like him to go into Iran, to go into Venezuela. They'll use him. You have ignorant Negroes in the Congressional Black Caucus looking the other way saying, well, he's a black man. He, he's all right and stuff like that. No, he's not all right. He's a Negro. He's dangerous. And we need to watch this guy. I forgot his name, Lloyd, whatever his name is. He's dangerous. He's nobody to play with, man. And, and, and lastly, Elliot, on the Cuban doctors. See, Brother Elliot, and I, that's why I grew with Brother Obi in this respect. Elliot. I'm always open. He said that some of these brothers in the sports thing may change. Some of them may change. But, lot, but I'm always open that people can change because I remember back when I was at the hospital in Jersey, this Portican sister, who's a good friend of mine, she was down on Castro and everything, but her daughter took a cultural trip to Cuba, and she said her daughter was so mesmerized by what she saw in Cuba, the medical doctors and stuff, and she came back and told her mother, who's a good friend of mine, Elliot, and she said she had to change her mind about Fidel Castro and stuff, and it's great thing, because she, she like a lot of our people, Elliot, our people black and Puerto Rican or whatever, she got caught up in the propaganda, that he was a, some kind of terrorist, he's a, you know, he's a communist, he this and that, but her daughter went firsthand, and she had a she stayed in Cuba for two weeks, so she had a chance to see a lot of things over in Cuba. So when, so when she went on that cultural trip with, 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 with her class, and they, and they saw all the great things that the Cuban people was doing, and they was doing this with a, with, a, with a blockade against them and stuff, man, doing all these great medical things. And she said she had to change her mind about Castro. So it's always a chance, when our, like you said, like, when our people, whether they be black, and a when they get the right information, and like Brother Obi said, they can definitely change if they, if they okay, have an open mind. They're willing to change. Don't keep buying into the American propaganda. That's what it's all about. And like you said, it's a shame that this country, with all the great medical doctors they train and stuff, because there's white racism, they'll sit there and rather let their own people in this country die 
with this vast, with this, with this questionable vaccination, then, 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 then look at people like Dr. Lane, the Cuban, the, the Cuban medical team, when they have alternative treatments that can help you with COVID-19 and won't take your life or, or, or leave you messed up like this vaccination that's been doing people in this country. They are so evil and wicked, they'll rather let their own people die. Even their own Caucasian people, they look at them as collateral damage too in a lot of cases. So they'll let them die in order to, to, to work with people like Dr. Lane and, and the medical personnel from Cuba. I mean, you, that's a hell of a mindset, man, that you're so evil and wicked that you'd rather your people die than look for alternatives, man. And stuff. I mean, it's just it's this deep, man. But anyway, I know you want to get some rest. I told you, I promise you, I'm gonna keep to my word. I'm not gonna hold you, Elliot. I just want to thank you, brother, for having OB on and, and let me come back on doing open forum, Elliot. Thanks a lot, brother. You and Richard have a good night, man. And uh, I'll catch y'all, brother. Hopefully, inshallah, if it pleases Allah, I see y'all. Hope I see y'all, brothers, this Friday. Talk to you. Thanks, thanks, brother. Elliot. Peace. Yeah, boy, we went over time tonight. Uh, before we uh, leave, I just want to give the lineup on time for Unawakening Media, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, African Perspectives with Brother Oshi from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays with host Brother Oshi, African Perspectives from 6 to 8. Later on Monday evening, Acres of Diamonds with Brother Jihad Ahmed from 8 to 9. On Monday evening, Black Therapy Central with host Dr. Mawia Combine. And from 9 to 10, Conversation Reparations, the first and third Monday of the month, and look like they're going to be going into March before they start back up again, so we'll see what happens. Um, on Tuesday, Black Reality Think Tank with Dr. William Rogers from nine from 8 to 10 on Time for an Awakening Media on Fridays. Time for an Awakening is back from 8 until on Saturdays from 4 to 6, Black Sister Talk with host Lawanda Chambers. And from 7 to 9 Saturday evenings, the elders of Sam Kofa with host Alfonso Watkins. And then Sunday evening, time for An Awakening is Back. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion, as always. And we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace.
Children. To save the children. 